2: And welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger coming to you live from New York City. Okay. Ooh, we're by Coastal Babies. <laughs> and even though it is in the top intro thing, we always like to explain. We talk SVU, we talk crime, we have a guest, and we really love this podcast. I like to you. imagine
1: people are tuning in to episode number 70 for their first taste of this podcast. So we always have they to just, explain what it yeah. is. <laughs>
2: Yeah, they love just this specific episode. <laughs> and they only watch this one. Listen, life is good. I do have to update everybody and say, I've fallen twice since last week. Oh, my gosh. I sprained my ankle Friday at South by Southwest in an alley walking, like, fully. I felt my ankle give out, fell, fell on my knee again. <sighs> like, bl- like, I have a mark. Um, Not big. You know, it wasn't, like, bleeding. And then... Last night, I got a little sauced, whatever. I'm eating pizza. I finally got to go to Prince Street Pizza. We're all having fun. I turn around. I didn't see there was a ledge. Fully fell again on my knee. Like, another huge fall. But everyone made fun of me because I immediately got up and goes, I fell again. I can't stop falling. (laughs) I don't know what it is. I feel it's the Carrie Bradshaw karma episode where um, with the dorm room party and she falls. I just, I don't know why I keep falling.
1: You know, I feel as though you're cosmically connected to Rosie and Rosie has not stopped falling in a week. Like truly, so, you know, we have one step in our house. There is one step in our house. It's like in the hallway. It just goes from one to It another. is a dumb step. It's a stupid it's a use, step, it's such but a she's dumb been around. Step. She's been walking it her whole life. Yesterday just fell doing it. You know what I mean? Like she just keeps falling.
2: But for her, I think it's a growth spurt. For you, I don't know what the fuck is going well, on. Well, she's obviously my tether is what I'm learning. Yes. And so that's <laughs> why I'm falling. <laughs> Oh my god,
1: yes, when you gave her a Daniel Tiger sleep mat, you guys got tethered and now you're she's like your voodoo doll baby. <laughs>
2: Uh, I can't wait for her birthday party. I know, you know, we're trying not to do gifts. We're not doing stuffies. <laughs> I might go shop in my garage. I might see Ooh, what I have in there. You know, she loves up. knickknacks. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe I'll get her a bag of used knickknacks, um, just to save the environment, but keep keep my girl Love happy. It. We'll Love see. It. Well, I was going to try to make your husband mad and get her temporary tattoos, but you said she doesn't like it. Well, no, yeah, he wouldn't even care. But like, yeah, I put one on
1: her and she goes, cool, can you take it off now? Like, she just did not want it the second I put it on. So, you know, but she did the same thing when I painted her nails. She goes, okay, take it off now. Yeah. It's annoying. Anyway, let me do a little bit of, let me do a little bit of announcement before I, before I forget, because I I just want to, so... We told you guys about San Francisco. That link is now live. Please buy tickets to our San Francisco show. We're so excited. You guys begged for it. We gave it to you. Let's go. Um, The other announcement is that our show this coming week at Dynasty Typewriter in Los Angeles is going to be live streamed. We have not announced this on the podcast yet. We've only announced it on our socials. So if you're one of our listeners that doesn't follow us on Instagram or Twitter, now you know. Um, You can go to that's messeduplive.com and click on the LA show and you can buy tickets for the live stream. It is on YouTube, so you can watch it anywhere in the world. If you're one of our UK or Canada people that couldn't watch our first live stream, You can watch this one because it's YouTube. There is going to be a chat. So you guys can all chit chat and have fun with each other and talk. And we're going to be reading your chat like at the show as well. And it's our only show we're going to live stream from the tour. So and I also want to mention we are doing different episodes at every city stop. So even if you're coming to Denver or you're coming to like Tempe... Hey, maybe you want to see what we're doing in LA. It's a totally different episode, and um, yeah, the live stream is also good for seven days. So I know it's like if you live in New York, you don't want to watch it at one a.m. I get that, but it's good for seven days. Wake up on Sunday, drink your coffee, watch a little, a little murder. You know?
2: Oh my god! While you were—is that it for announcements? Yeah, you I really, think that's killed it. it. Well, let me give you a shout out. I don't know if any of you know how many emails it takes to do anything, <laughs> but Kara has answered all of them. So thank God the tour is happening. It would not have happened if she did not keep responding to the countless fucking emails for <laughs> ticket links and posters i mean i, I it's can't, a lot of logistics a lot of moving parts um please like keep supporting us so we can get an assistant yeah. i mean i don't even know what else to say <laughs> I, we can't Ke- kara cannot keep answering these emails i'm
1: going to have to hire rosie soon no
2: and then i one more thing i was going to say is there's
1: like a handful of tickets left for la please help us sell out if you haven't bought your la ticket yet please come there's only a few left um, and then, yeah, obviously, come join us on the live, baby. And that's it. What? Tell me what else is going on. You were in Texas. Well, guess who I met yesterday? Who?
2: Ms. Cracker. <gasps> uh, but I flailed and comedian. lost it. I know her. I, I went up to her and I was just like, oh my. I like, I couldn't get it together. And I don't really know why. I mean, I know. And I was like, I am so sorry. I'm nervous. And she looks at me and I go, but I know Mateo. And he, and then whatever. Yeah, so yeah. So I kept name dropping Mateo. I couldn't get a sentence out. And Ms. Cracker went... I'm just a man in a dress. There's no reason to be nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: <laughs> also, Miss Cracker Watch is away. truly five feet tall, the
2: smallest person. Yes, like so yes. diminutive, like not scary. But well, she was in full drag though yeah. at a party where no one else. I mean, maybe the star of the hour. I went to I got to go to Kat Cohen's um like Netflix special premiere gathering. And it was a who's who, I'll tell you that. It was uh, really wild, but that crazy bitch, her signature drink was a martini. <laughs> uh, a man left in an ambulance. Oh my um, God. People were. Out of their the signature drink was martini that's I mean a recipe for disaster. I can't even everyone was just losing it on these martinis all night long. It was really wild. I'm like, you classy bitch. Yeah, that's really but also so chaotic. So chaotic.
1: Ms. Cracker, though, is cool. Like, I helped Ms. Cracker on a improv challenge that she won, and she like thanked me afterwards. She's like, You really got me out of my head. Thank you so much for your help on this. And I was like, You'll love this. Ms. Cracker, anything for you anything for a fellow jewess
2: well okay wait do you follow each other can you message her and apologize that i couldn't stop stuttering no
1: i don't follow her <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh my god i don't know cut this or not Who cares? <laughs> we're all having fun well, i will I don't say know, this- if
1: we're gonna chat about drag this season is killing me
2: Well, I didn't watch the one Friday, but I obviously someone's golden ticket came out, I'm assuming. No. Someone again did. No? Nope. There was no fucking golden ticket. And no one got sent home? Nope. Why?
1: It's like a setup for, okay, if you haven't watched, if you're not caught up on Drag Race, please I'm not caught forward. up. I want to know. Yeah, yeah. If you're not caught up on Drag I don't want anyone to spoil. Also, this comes out after the next episode will have already happened. So I'm so, like, this will be kind of moot, but we love to talk about shit. We're in the time machine. So basically they bombed Snatch Game. They did bad, like all of them. Like the only person that did well won the whole challenge and the rest of them are in the bottom. So Rue basically said, next week you're all lip syncing for your life, but it's going to be like Lala Perusa or whatever they did before. So they're just leading it into that instead of eliminating someone. But I really hope there's like a double elimination. It makes me feel like the show's going to go on until the like fucking fall. I mean, it's like no one's gone home in like three, it's crazy. Yeah, I'm a. And they all just did super bad on Snatch Game. Like, George just did Alana Glazer. It was not good. Like, you just got to watch it. I cannot wait. Yeah. It's just wild to me. You've watched 14, 13 seasons of this show, you've watched five seasons of All Stars, six, six seasons of All Stars. You know what Snatch Game is. Get a bunch of your friends together, brainstorm, workshop, figure out how you're going to kill the Snatch Game. Like, it doesn't
2: seem... Call Mateo. Yeah. You're he all friends help you. with Mateo. <laughs> <laughs> like, why? Uh, yeah, why wouldn't you work with someone? But yeah, but I don't, I think, I get it. Because if I got on Survivor, I would not learn how to make a fire before I got there. And then everyone <laughs> would be like, why didn't you learn to make a fire? And I'd be like, I didn't want to. Like, right. I get it. Like, I don't know if I'd learn to sew. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's why yeah. I can't fully learning judge that. Learning to them. sew,
1: learning to make a fire. I don't know. Those are like, yeah, I guess, learning to make a fire is not that hard. But um, learning <laughs> to sew seems very hard to me, at least. But like, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, figure out with your friends, like an accent you can do, a voice. Like, it's just, you know, what's also tough is that you're not allowed to be any fictional characters. You have to be like real people. And there's just
2: not that many real people that are that big of a character or that interest. You know what I mean? Like, but you make them interesting because, like, I'm sorry, Adele is not like, ha, ha, ha bit, you know. But Ginger Minge killed it. Yeah, her. yeah. Adele's
1: pretty funny, but yeah, I say like it's like when they do Gaga when three of them do Gaga. Gaga's yeah. not really a big
2: personality. There's not like a thing where you're like, oh, that's. But so I Gaga. believe that I can make Gaga fun. Of. I do. <laughs> I think there's ways to make Gaga funny and silly and weird. She's weird. If you saw her Thanksgiving special or her banter, she's a fucking psycho. (laughs) Her movements are nuts. Like, there are ways to do it. They're just like... Comedy's hard. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, of course, of course. But you also have to come in with multiple
1: jokes. You have to come in, not just going, oh, this person yeah. does this. You have to come in with multiple things that they do. Anyway, I'm here as your stash game And be
2: in the moment because RuPaul does la- lob-, lob him up, lob him up, you know, like, y- yeah. RuPaul is on your side. RuPaul yeah, is she's not like, making up. it hard.
1: Listen, if any drag queens are listening to this, I mean, I think Shay listens sometimes. Some other tr- queens might listen. If you get on Drag Race, I will be your Snatch Game consultant. I will help you figure something out. Please contact me. DM me. My DMs are open. Lisa, what were you going to say? I'm going to love this.
2: Well, not as good as this. (laughs) Okay, So do you remember last year, year and a half, ago, whatever, a book came out. Amy Beth Saul put it together and it was like the 150 funniest girl comics and it was all these stories and drawings and it was like a big yeah, hit. notes like on a bathroom, from the bathroom
1: line. line or whatever yeah mm-hmm.
2: so i got to meet her and as i said the martinis were pouring and i did say i go you know when the book came out i was a little bit like where am i <laughs> <laughs> and i got to kind of confront her and it, it felt funny <laughs> um i that's very funny but i i
1: knew some female comedians who spiraled that they were not in that book <laughs>
2: Like oh, I know. I was some <laughs> were not taking it well. <laughs> no, and everyone was great. We were talking about all the artists, but I was like, you know, I did uh, I was like 150. I didn't even make and she <laughs> goes, "I know it was tough. There's so many cool ones, I wish this and that." And there were but like actresses.
1: <laughs> I mean, there were like big names that don't do comedy at all, you know, like
2: Well, we can't all be in everything, but it was just funny to be able to be like, oh, I noticed, bitch. And I did take note (laughs) on a bathroom line that I was not in it. (laughs) But um, yeah, it was cool. All these like Princeton uh, people were at the... I don't know. You're you're friends with summer camp and college. You guys keep... Uh, yeah, most of my friends, I would say, I met in comedy. That's like, yeah. I don't really so her par- have a so the party group. was
1: not all industry people. It was like lots no. of regulars. No, but
2: because and you guys might know this because you listen to our podcast. But I listen to all these people's podcasts, and so it is crazy to meet people and be like, "Well, I know you're in couples therapy. So how's that going?" <laughs> like. It's weird. I'm like, so you did anal with your boyfriend. I heard that. How did it go? Like, it is wild. You just know so much about all these loose people because yeah. they are guests on podcasts or you listen to their podcasts and you have to kind of keep it tight, but the martinis. They kept yeah. It very blunt. It was a blunt party. Surprised that did not devolve into like a full orgy. That sounds so crazy. Not a full orgy, but definitely like we were all tr- we had to like pull a person who could not stand. But we're all theater kids. So it was like eight of us trying to carry one <laughs> little man. Like, it was um You're like, let's it was make tough. a Gurney. <laughs> And if you guys don't know, Cat Cohen's special, our amazing friend who did our theme song for this podcast, Henry Kapersky is the musical director of that special. He plays the piano. So you get to see him sitting. He like co-wrote the songs. Um, so shout out to Henry as well. He is so talented. Looking like a Kendall, Fucking cutie. Yeah. And brought insomniac cookies. That, that's a star. Ooh, used to to li- I used to live party. around a corner from one of
1: those. Oh, He's so talented. Yeah, guys, check out Cat Cohen's special on Netflix.
2: I'm trying to think of a South by Southwest story. It is such a giant festival, but I truly I, I did I'm do fa- a, Zoom. a blank. I did do a Zoom with Lisa by the pool. Yeah. She was very living her best I feel life. Cool. Yeah, working at a cabana pool is awesome. <laughs> but I felt like all the other South by douches. We were all just like douchey on our Zoom calls at the pool, but. That's, you know, well, that's kind of good, though.
1: I don't want to be somewhere where people are relaxing and I'm on a Zoom call. Like, I'd rather we all be on the fucking Zoom calls. We're all the worst people, you know? Yeah, we all just can't take a break. Well, you know, um, t- it's, you know, it basically goes Elon Musk, the guys who founded Google, Lisa Traeger. I mean, it's like this, <laughs> these are the te- the great tech minds that are at South by. So they need to- No, the up.
2: audience, are so many tech people. I did meet Bevers. His name is John, but from Broad City. Yeah, Bevers, yeah. do you remember? Oh, Abby's I know remember- John
1: Gemberling very well. We've known each other for oh. a long time.
2: Yeah. Oh, amazing. I don't know him at all. And I just went, I know you from television. Uh, Pointed <laughs> right at him. But then we became friends. So that was no, nice. No, he's so And great. I met Danielle Schneider. From Bitch stash. Oh, yeah. Oh, she was... Oh, yeah, because cause her husband goes there. Yeah, and um, they brought their daughter, who had a giant bow, and I got to be like, you a JoJo Siwa fan? And uh, so I got to bond with their daughter. Too. They recently
1: they did were... a live show, and Sydney came out on stage in New York to, like, I think, like, a couple thousand people. Like, the daughter, like, came out and did, like, a they do, like, reenactments of Housewives and stuff. We could do that on our podcast. I think they would just be sad, but they do that on their podcast and it's funny. And I think the little girl like did a part and um, it sounded, I I mean, I obviously
2: wasn't there, but it sounded really cute. I'm so no, glad you No, she was got on stage her. with Matt. Yeah, I was like, I'm a Bravo girl. And it was um, very uh, thrilling to chat a little bit. Um, um, but it sounds but, like yeah. a lot of fun. That's so great. And it's just a lot of us haven't seen each other. Like, I didn't see any movies. I didn't go to any bars. I didn't go dancing. I sat in, like, the lounge and just, like, talked to everyone that I was so excited to see and our friends. And I want to give a shout out to, I would say, one of the best photographers in the whole world, Mindy Tucker. Like, I was not feeling my best. I didn't feel that cool. And then one moment, in front of her camera, and I looked at the photos, and I go, oh, okay, I'm yeah. changing my Yeah, no, tune. you look
1: awesome in her photos. She is— She is
2: incredible. She's, if you're took, on the took East Coast— all my
1: headshots of my first, like, six headshots before I moved to L.A. She's— She was invited to my wedding. She just couldn't come because she was shooting
2: another wedding.
1: <laughs> like, she's a friend of mine, and I love yeah, her so much. Yeah, it was much.
2: awesome to see her, and you get to catch up while she's shooting you, and— um, that was very special. Truly the so best. She's the in best. In between the falls. That was the big, the big thing for me. And I think I met some listeners. In between falls.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the highlights, in
2: between falls, the Lisa Traeger story. Okay. But well, listen. Um, listen. And I did have an espresso martini at the Four Seasons. Listen, I am, I'm doing, <laughs> someone had a per diem. Someone had a per diem. Well, let's get started because this episode is oh,
1: a classic. I'm so excited.
2: We've wanted to do it for a very long time. um, And happy Purim to everyone. And let's get fucking started. All right. We are talking
1: today about Control. Season 5, Episode 9. Clearly a banger of a season, Lisa. This is our seventh episode from Season 5. We're doing. <laughs> wow. When I was going through, I was like, wait, we've done that one. We've done that I was like, damn, we've done a lot from this episode. I mean, this season. So... Uh, We get an opening card on this episode that says, although inspired in part by a true incident, the following story is fictional, blah, blah, blah. And I wonder why sometimes they have this card and other times they don't. We'll have to ask Neil. Like, I wonder how much information, like what percentage of information has to be ripped in order for them to give you this little
2: although inspired in part by. I've actually Uh, never noticed that.
1: I have. I've noticed it a few times. Like Sometimes they'll be like, it's, like, crazy to me because it's, like, some episodes, it's, like, this is Michael Jackson. This is Woody Allen. And, like, you're not, like, no, you're fooling no one, yeah. you know? And so, I don't even know if those come with those. We'll have to see when we cover those. But so, we start on an escalator going down into the subway where there's this little cutie holding hands with her grandpa. And he is played by none other than Mickey Hargitay father of Mariska Hargitay. Wow. That is her father. And he didn't do really much acting, it looks like, according to his IMDb, after the early 70s. So this was probably just like a fun thing to do with his daughter. And then he died in 2006 a few years later. So I love this. So the little girl's like, Grandpa, who made the world? It's a little bit too precocious almost. Um, And he's answering her. And it's really cute because he's like, some people say it's God, some people. And then we're sort of flashing on a man who's coming to the up escalator. And he's like moaning in pain. We don't know what's going on with him. And he's getting closer and closer to passing them. And the, the little girl's like, I think Bob the Builder made the world. That's his job. And it's like, okay, Cute little shout out to Bob the Builder. And then right when the grandpa and the little girl are getting close to this man, the grandpa notices that the guy is covered in blood from like in his genital region. And he screams, oh my God. And then the man stumbles back to the bottom of the escalator. And it's very dramatic. And it reminded me of the subway stop I think it's like Lexington and 50th or something where it's like just a million escalators. You feel like you're coming up from the center of the earth. You know what I'm <laughs> yes, talking about? Yes. Oh my God. It's like, I, I'm not even scared of heights and I'm like, don't look back. It's like too many escalators. Yeah, it's anyway. by Bloomingdale's. Yeah, yeah. So now we cut to CSU on the scene, and I believe it's uh, CSU Captain Judith Seiper on the scene again. And Mariska is questioning her dad, and it's really cute, and they kind of have, like, matching swoopy hair in it, and I really am loving it. And he tells Olivia the whole story, and then he says he called 911, and when she said, did he say anything? The guy said, he just kept saying, it's a mistake, it's a mistake. And... Now Stabler is uh, on the scene and he's got the victim's name. His name is Horace Gorman and the actor that plays him is named Austin Pendleton. And I feel like I've seen this man my entire life in different stuff. He's got 155 credits Interesting uh, credit. One of them is he plays Gurgle in Finding Nemo and Dory. All of those movies. He plays one of this fish called Gurgle. That's his voice. He's also in Oz, My Cousin Vinny, Short Circuit, and one of my favorite movies of the 80s, Hello Again with Shelley Long, obsessed with this movie. And he's basically all over the place working. And then Stabler is in here with the big pre-credits reveal. Gorman's penis and testicles were cut off and they are nowhere to be found. Done, done, and now dun, we're done, baby. <laughs> so it's one of those. I think we've had more than one person get their dick chopped off. Like, definitely, there was. I think in one of the first episodes ever, the pilot the, season one, baby. Yeah, yeah, he gets his uh, dick either dick stabbed. Yeah, or he's cut a off. war criminal. Yeah, from Serbia or something.
2: We've had some other pedophiles on the show that castrate themselves to get out of jail, mm. like for parole reasons mm-hmm. or something. Yeah yeah but we've
1: seen missing we've heard missing family jewels puns from these guys, oh, before.
2: yeah, there's also one where it's like an old teacher that molested a bunch of the girls and they saw him and in a hotel room, they chop they castrate him. Mm. so yeah, there's been some dick there's been a few cut penises on this show for yeah. sure.
1: Um, so in the hospital, Gorman is sitting up in bed, talking to the cops with one of these cartoony, like, all the way around the noggin bandages, which I just am always like, what is that? What's happening? (laughs) Um, and he doesn't remember anything that happened. He just remembers stepping off the train onto the platform, and then that was it and he said everything else is a blur. And they go, "Well, you were saying it was it's a mistake, it's a mistake. What did you mean?" And he goes, "I must have been delirious. The last thing I felt was something hitting the back of my head and then darkness." But he does remember and suddenly he's like, "I remember nothing." And then it's like, "But I remember this very specific detail." Um he remembers an unhoused man in black rags ranting and r- about a Judas tree and other like religious stuff. And then he starts to get upset and is like, "I'm not a man anymore." And he's all like crying and upset. So Back at the precinct. Olivia is like looking at all the info on the board and she's kind of like, maybe he wanted to be castrated. Like the Emmy said it was cut with something sharp like a scalpel. Like this was obviously like maybe he went in for some kind of, you know, penis removal, which is a wild way to go, Olivia. I feel like it's like, well, let's wait till we get the tapes before we decide that this guy maybe wanted his dick cut off. Um, But Munch suggests, uh, that it might be part of a cult. And of course, he knows everything about history and is like, Roman priests, men used to get castrated for divine status. Like, again, this guy doesn't seem happy that his penis is gone, right? He didn't see like, oh, it was my it was my dick surgery went wrong. Oh no, like he seems like he would like to have it back. Um, so Daddy Cragen is like, so he was either snipped by a homeless guy or he had a voluntary penectomy. Not a word I get to use every day. And I just, I love a, a Captain Craig zinger. Zinger. Uh, and I, I never really heard the name penectomy. I guess castration is really about cutting off your balls, right? And yeah. then penectomy is the penis. So we learn something new every day. Um, the lowdown on Gorman is he's 62, single and rich. He retired at 30 and he invented the games where you play... Uh, games on bottle caps, underneath bottle caps. And Finn goes, oh, I never win at that. And Munch is like, because it's a scam, dum-dum. Like, it's a cute little interaction. And then Munch obviously is on the net Googling castration and finds some guy up in Riverdale who does this. And I keep thinking, like, can you check the tapes? Like, where are the tapes from the subway? And then Cragen is like, did we get the tapes yet? And they're still waiting for them to be sent. So in the meantime, he wants to keep everyone busy. So he's like, Benson and Stabler, go check with CSU about this unhoused man. Maybe he that's a lead. And then Munch and Finn go up to that dick chopper in Riverdale. So at the doctor's house, this is like a full just red herring that is that is silly. He shows them where he cuts the dicks off and it's on his kitchen table, which is so nasty. But he's like, I sterilize it first. And um, it's like, still, you eat at the same place where you chop off peenies. But like to me, so it's weird. like, how
2: badly do you need to chop your dick off that you're going to do it at some dermatologist, optometrist, whatever he is yeah. on a kitchen table? Like, I'm just trying to understand and it's hard for me.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's like he just takes cash. You don't have to go to the doctor and deal with it. I don't know what people, some people are, pro- I don't know why you want to get your dick cut off. I'm sure there's a fucking Reddit subreddit about that. I really do think there probably is and I will look for it. Um, he shows Finn his license and Finn's like you're an, al- or Munch his license and Munch is like you're an allergist. And then he goes, he has a point. He goes, if you ask me to beat you up and I beat you up, am I committing a crime? If these guys want their dicks cut off, I do it. Like, so, you know, it is a free country, I guess. But uh, although I th- I still think, yeah, I don't know if you're allowed to do that with just a medical license. I think you have to have an. Uh- like, I don't think my mom can just perform open heart surgery because she's a pediatrician. Do you know what I mean? I think you have to have other certifications, <laughs> but this guy doesn't seem to think so. So they show him Horace and he's like, I've never seen him before. And then it's like a dead end. So Benson and Stable are now at the crime scene, the subway platform with Judith Seiper. Um, and she's showing them the footprints. And she's like, Look, these footprints are Gorman's shoes. They lead back to this construction area at the end of the platform. There's a pool of blood here but it's unfortunately an area that's out of range for the cameras. So they think, okay, maybe this unhoused guy jumped him and then took off down the abandoned tunnel. And another cop calls out and he goes, I found blood drops down in the tunnel. And there's a bunch of uh, encampments set up there for like where unhoused people live. It's a lot of people. Um, And then this this, uh, side cop who's there grabs this unhoused woman and she's like struggling against him. And look who it is. It's Abigail Savage from Orange is the New Black. And she played the masturbator in Sugar. And she goes on to become Sister Nina in later SVU episodes. So she's an SVU champ and this is her first SVU episode. And when I was looking her up, I noticed that she has 105 credits as a sound editor and a sound engineer. 105. So she just, I guess before she started acting, she just was doing sound and then was like, maybe I'm gonna do a career change and I love that. So she tells them her name is Dot and Olivia's like, did you see anyone come down here this morning? And she's like, One of
2: my favorite names. Dot? Yeah. It is a cute
1: name. I My friend has a Dot daughter but she's Dorothy and she's actually Dorothy Rose which I'm like, two golden girls might be overkill but Dottie's very cute. Um, she says, I can't tell you he'll cut my eyes out. And she explains that Samuel sees everything and that she saw him earlier. His hands were bloody and he said he got an offering, a human sacrifice. So she, they're like, well, where can we find Samuel? And she's like, Samuel lives down below at the Grand Center. And now we're in this huge like underground village where all these unhoused people live. Like, I don't know how, where they shot this, but it's like multiple levels, people in their own little areas, lots of garbage campfires and stuff. It's like a full community down here. And um, this is when I noticed that the other cop that they're with is Ben Bailey, host of Cash Cab and a stand-up comedian. I didn't notice
2: that. That's fucked up. There's so many people in this episode that are famous. It's crazy. Or like famous to me. I've like sat, you know, like he's a seller person. So I've sat with him on many of occasions, did not catch this for one second.
1: I knew, I was like, he's familiar. Who is that guy? And then I was like, oh my God, it's fucking Ben Bailey, who used to follow me on Twitter and I have no idea why, <laughs> but uh he might not anymore anyway. Um <laughs>
2: I was about to say, why would he unfollow you? Did you guys fight?
1: No, I I don't know. I thought he was one of those like Tay Diggs people that was just following a lot of people because we've never met, you know? But uh, I always remember this city, like this like little unhoused city in the bowels of Grand Central that they're talking about. And I would always think about it when I rode the subway. I'd be like, I wonder how far deep down is like the Grand Center, you know? So I actually looked into it and this is based on the so-called mole people, quote-unquote, who live in an abandoned section of New York City subway system, which is called the Freedom Tunnel. And it's actually not under Grand central. It goes from Penn Station and it stretches up past Harlem, which is a lot of blocks. That's like off the top well, of my I head, that's 80 blocks.
2: What's fucked up and scary is when sandier storms and rain happens. Like what happens to these mole people?
1: yeah. Hopefully, people come through and say, like, there's a big storm coming like that. I don't know. I mean, who knows? Um, But so there was a documentary about this in 2000 by Mark Singer called Dark Days, and it followed a group of people living down there. And then there was another book by Tiun Votan called Tunnel People, and he lived with them for five months, and it's about all the inhabitants of the Freedom Tunnel. So there's more information if you want to learn about this, but this is based on, like, a real thing.
2: I also love that we're like being careful. I mean, like, and our unhoused neighbors. And then we're like, and these mole people. I know. I, well, I, that's why I said quote
1: unquote, because that's like what they're called. Like that. that's what the documentaries call them and stuff. So, you know, but then mole people also has a second definition because it's in like science fiction. There's, there's something about mole people. So that's, that's separate. That's not these people. Um. So Ben Bailey, as we're walking through the grand center is giving us the scoop on Samuel. And he's like, he's been living underneath grand central for years. And this guy just happens to know exactly where Samuel's like area is. So maybe this man is like a transit cop or something. And um, they go into Samuel's little home and he's not there, but Liv spots fresh blood leading to a paper bag that is being held by a mannequin in its hands. And this reminds me, I know I talk about it all the time. It does remind me of Silence of the Lambs when they go to the storage unit and they see all that freaky shit in the storage unit, and they find Benjamin Moss. I don't know if we've
2: talked about this, but have you seen the tweet? Like, Silence of the Lambs really ruined it for nice uh, people and casts that need help pushing a couch (laughs) into a truck. Yes. So true.
1: So, like, I can't hear the song "American Girl" by Tom Petty without thinking of somebody getting shoved into a truck. <laughs> yeah, like because that's what she's listening to right as she pulls up. Anyway, yeah, that's
2: how I feel about "Stuck in the Middle" with you. You know that ear chopping moment in um, "Reservoir Dogs." Yes, yes,
1: yes. yes I know yes. the soundtrack. I've never actually seen that movie.
2: Oh, it's um, <laughs> a good one. I know. I've Star gotta watch studded. it. And amazing I know, I... acting. It's like Harvey Keitel and that other guy at the end, uh, Tim Roth or whatever. So good. I don't know. I'm a huge Tarantino person.
1: I met him one time and he got mad at me. Did I tell you?
2: Wait, did you? (laughs) I escorted
1: him on Conan and he was so nice to me. And then it was Christmas. And when I feel like I've talked about this either on this podcast or another one, but when we got him down to the street level for him to leave his car was just like stuck in traffic. And he's like, where's my car, Kara?" And I was like, it's coming. It's like, it's like a block away. Like the guys, I'm on the phone with the guy, like he's coming. But he was like pissed because people were starting to mob him. And I was like, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. And he was, but he was nice to me in the end. It was fine. Um, But what can I do? I can't move New York City traffic around 30 Rock, you know, (laughs) anyway, (laughs) at Christmas. Um, Anyway, they go into this bag that this mannequin is holding. And we have found Mr. Gorman's, family jewels or whatever they want to call it. They're his dick and balls are in this bag. And um, suddenly, a trash campfire blazes and Ben Bailey turns around and goes, it's him. And it's like very cinematic. <laughs> like like in Jurassic Park, it's like when the T-Rex shows up. like, And Samuel is like up on some kind of high platform and he's like, Ugh. and then they flash their flashlights on him and that like spooks him and he runs for it. Stabler chases him, sacks him. They take off his goggles and he's like in pain from the light of the flashlight. And he's like begging them, like, please don't take me into the light. Like, so this man has something going on and he's got like white, 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 white pale skin. So the next scene, Samuel is cuffed to a wall in an interrogation room and Huang enters and he turns the lights down and then he turns them all the way off. And that's when Samuel kind of like is like, I'll... I'll, talk. And he's like, my name isn't Samuel. It's Samael. And Huang, of course, who knows everything about everything (laughs) is like, ah, Lucifer before he was in heaven when he was still an angel. And uh, Samuel is like, God wants Samael to return to heaven, but he belongs to the darkness. And Huang asks, do you talk to God? And he says, no, God sends his archangel who brings me offerings. And she was wearing a white hood and she carries a shining sword. She cut the limb from the Judas tree. So... Hints, hints, hints all over the place from Samuel. Um, Huang steps out of interrogation and talks to Benson and Stabler. And he's like, I think Sam, you, I think Sammy Sam has a genetic disorder called porphyria, which is light sensitivity and could be responsible for his abdominal pains and possibly his delusions as well. Um, and Huang's like, it's possible he's violent, but the light literally hurts him. So I really don't think he would have stepped out into the subway platform to cut someone's dick off. Like, he, your flashlight was bothering him. So I don't think he would have been able to handle like subway fluorescent lighting. And just then, Cragen lets us know those tapes are finally here. Thank God. I'm like waiting for these tapes. So now they're watching the tapes. It shows Gorman getting off the subway, strolling down the platform, when suddenly a woman in a white puffy coat with the hood up confronts him and then she follows him down. the. They talk for a few seconds, and then she follows him down the platform, but her head is tilted down, and we never see her face. It's almost like she knows that there are cameras, and we never see her face. And Liv is like, uh, well, Gorman clearly lied to us. Let's go talk to him. Like He spoke to this woman on the platform, but the hospital just called and told them that Gorman has checked himself out against medical advice. So... We go to his apartment. This fancy, rich man who's retired since for 30 years. Let's go check out his beautiful apartment. So the doorman, you can tell it's a nice building because the doorman is like in a full uniform. And he's like... Uh, That's oh, like Ms. a
2: dream of mine. I want to ha- have a door guy and I want to be friends with him.
1: Yeah, that'd be nice. and Give him a nice
2: Christmas present. I oh, see cash.
1: That. You're supposed to sure. tip. I read. I'm sure you'd give something else too, though. I'm sure you'd be like, I know your son likes soccer. Here's something I found on <laughs> Etsy. You, please, please. you'd you. give one other thing besides the cash. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the guy opens the apartment for Benson and Stabler. And when they get in there, it is full hoarders. Like this guy has stacks and stacks of newspapers and magazines. It's really nasty looking. He's got toilet paper, like all this shit. So the doorman, they're like, oh, does he have a woman in his life? And the doorman's like, no, he's a confirmed bachelor. And I'm like, what a weird concept. I'm a confirmed bachelor. I don't know. Um, But, They're like, that's weird that he's a bachelor because Stabler flips open the first thing he sees and it's a photo album of a woman in a wedding dress. And so he's like, well, I see that he's been married. And then Liv finds two more and realizes that all these women are wearing the same wedding dress and a dog collar. And um, Liv sees one of the brides and is like, holy shit, I know this girl. She came into the squad four years ago and told me she'd been kept in a dungeon by some freak and forced to marry him. And Liv is like, I didn't believe her because she was drunk.
2: And it's Cuts always it sad when short. Liv makes those mistakes.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: We expect yeah, more from her.
1: She's not a perfect person, but she does. We do expect more. Uh, and she's believed wilder people. I mean, she's believed people that were in the middle. I mean, remember the fucking episode with... um. Uh Amanda Plummer, where she's in a full uh she's in a full manic episode, and like they believe everything she's talking <laughs> about, you know, so anyway, on top of Act two, we find out this woman's name is Hillary Barclay, and then f- so four years ago she got into a car with this guy on a rainy night, he locked her up for three months and then just let her go, which is pretty wild um and he blindfolds her and then drives her around and then just dumped her somewhere, he just let her out. And Cragen asks if Liv checked it out. And she was like, there was nothing to check. She just said it was a white older male driving a dark two-door. Like, And he's like, you didn't buy her story? And she's like, I wish I had. And then Munch and Stabler are backing her up, being like, no, she, I remember her. She was drinking, drugging, incoherent. Meanwhile, I don't, don't remember, remember people like, no, I, that's not true. I remember like everybody that I meet, but I don't remember so many things that happened or what people told me. And it's just wild that they're like, oh yeah, four years ago, I remember this girl drinking drug and, you know, whatever. She was incoherent. And then they said, she also had a court date that she'd missed for a drug charge. And they thought she might be making up this whole abduction thing as a way to be like, that's why I missed my court date. And so uh, they also reveal that Hillary's mother is Juliette Barclay. And C- <laughs> Cragen goes, the supermodel. And I just love the idea that Cragen just knows who all the models are. And they find out that she now owns and runs an antiquity shop on Madison Avenue. So we cut to the shop and Juliet is played by gorgeous Jacqueline Bissett, who is, it's weird. She's a very famous British actress and I've known who Jacqueline Bisset was my entire life. But I look at her IMDb and I'm like, I don't even know what I've watched that she's been in. Like she's been in so much, but like, I remember her mostly from this episode as an older person, but... I think my dad also used to say she was really gorgeous or something. Like, I remember him telling me she was beautiful or something. But she's in the original Murder on the Orient Express, and she's also in this movie called Airport, which is a disaster movie and was one of the first big movies that brought in, like, disaster movies. And she played a pregnant stewardess carrying Dean Martin's baby, which I love. Um, She's also Angelina Jolie's godmother. Also... This is kind of cool. And I thought you would like this, Lisa. She's 77 years old. She's had all these romances with like wealthy men, but she's never been married and she's child free. And she's just like, I never wanted any of that stuff. Do we know any of the
2: people she had romances with? It's like high profile Moroccan
1: architects or like, you know, real estate people. You know what I mean? It was like never, I mean, maybe there were actors, but not in what I was reading about her. And Exciting. I didn't do a deep dive, but...
2: She's like, um, Brian Safdie's miss. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I just think it's cool that she was like, I wanted to be an actor and like, this is what means the most to me and I didn't really need that other stuff. Like, I don't think I could have done that stuff well and still done my craft well, which I think you can, but she didn't think she could, so she didn't do it. So she's in her shop, being like, I don't talk to my daughter. She's got a very posh accent. And um, she's like, if this is another one of her schemes, you guys better skedaddle. She hasn't talked to Hillary in two years. And she said, Hillary was a junkie who stole from me, wrecked my marriages, told outrageous lies, and my pregnancy with her ended my modeling career. Ouch. And uh, she's like, back then, women didn't have a choice. So she clearly has, like, a lot of resentment towards her daughter. And uh, they tell her, hey, guess what? That story about her being kidnapped by a psycho and kept hostage was true. And she looks shocked. And she's like, oh, my God. Like, you can tell. You can see the regret on her face. And she's like, she wrote me a letter about a month ago. I've got an address for her on the Lower East Side. So now they're at her apartment, Lower East Side. And the door opens, and it's Samantha Mathis. And I recognized her from the photo, but now we're seeing her in person. Superstar of the 90s. Like, she was in Pump Up the Volume. So many cool movies. I grew up, like, watching her. She also dated, like, tons of cool guys, like Christian Slater, River Phoenix. Like, she was, like, a hot it girl and um, is still working constantly. And this is her first of three episodes of SVU she's been on, and she always plays, like, a significant part. So... She's an SVU legend. And she looks at Olivia, remembers her immediately, and is like pissed, like, What the hell are you doing here? I remember you. And they're like, Well, your mom, we talked to your mom. That's how we found you. And she's like, Screw my mom and screw you. And she walks back into the apartment, but leaves the door wide open for them to follow her, which (laughs) is a weird move. And Stabler's like, We know you were telling the truth. And she's like burning incense and she's got a big Buddha on her coffee table. Like, I think she's trying for like very Zen vibes and she's telling them like, I'm sober now. I'm trying to get my life together. And um, she's skeptical about talking to the cops though, rightfully so. She's like, what, are you gonna like do anything about it unlike last time? And then they mention that they know who the guy is and she's like, oh my God, who is it? Like, tell me everything. And they're like, well, we obviously can't tell you anything, but they need her alibi for the night that he was attacked. And she says, I was at an N.A. meeting. Olivia asks her about the details of where she was held. And she goes, she starts, like, she walks to the window and is giving, like, a tearful monologue about, like, you know, her captivity. And she's like, he called it his party place. Or maybe party palace. Did I write that wrong? Anyway, he called it his party something. And, I, and it was a hellhole. And she said, I thought I was going to die there. I would have tried to kill him, but there was a combo lock on the door. So if I had attacked him, I would have been, like, stuck there forever. Uh, there were no windows. And it was like a cold and damp basement. And she heard chanting in a strange language, like some kind of satanic cult. So these are the details. And so Munch, they go back to the precinct and Munch has discovered that Gorman, despite being a Christian, has given a lot of money to the Jews, specifically to a synagogue on the Lower East Side. He funded a restoration and supervised a restoration of this synagogue and lives like the chanting. And I just think, LOL, that Hebrew sounds like a satanic cult. Like I grew up going to Hebrew school, singing all these songs and people are like, satanic cult.
2: <laughs> well, anything sounds like a cult if you don't know what the hymning is. If you're like locked sure. in a basement, and just hear people, um, you know, all together humming. Yeah. And you're, you're, you don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I could. that, that could like, sound Like who weird. knew where she grew up? Maybe she didn't go to bat mitzvahs all the time.
1: But in New York. Well, she grew up in New York, right?
2: You, you are you're avoiding a bar mitzvah
1: if you're not going to one in New York. <laughs> um, so they go to this temple where he uh, had supervised this restoration, and they're talking to the rabbi. And this man is played by Pierre Epstein, who you may also recognize as Charlotte's rabbi from Sex and the City. He's in like three episodes of Sex and the City it went like during her conversion, Charlotte. Yeah. (laughs) And he's, I've seen him in other stuff too, this man. And uh, he's going on and on about, oh, Gorman, like we love him. He saved our temple. Like we gave him unsupervised access to the whole shul. And then it's like, uh uh-oh. Finn rolls in and he's got major info. And he's like, I've been here before. My parents brought me here. It wasn't always a temple. It was a church and it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. So it's like, now we know there are tunnels. Let's get going. So downstairs, we're in the tunnels we've immediately got that ominous dripping noise that i talk about all the time like drip drip you're always going to find something bad when you hear the dripping um csu captain cypers with them using a machine like which they used in another episode that we uh that we well, the one where the guy was behind the um wall anyway it's like to detect if there's like a void behind a wall and so she finds this big wall and she goes, there's a hidden, there's a space behind here. Like there's a big void here. So obviously a hidden room of some kind. We got two cops. I don't know. They did not give these guys enough direction because I'm watching these two cops just like very casually sledgehammer a wall. They're, they didn't seem like they had much urgency to their mission, but they finally get through and inside it's like a nightmare cell, but it's, it's not unlike things we've seen before. There's like a bucket toilet you know, a dirty fridge and microwave, a bed, like an old-ass TV with bunny ears. So, like, we've seen these kind of cells before where, unfortunately, men are always holding women. Uh, And then they turn the light on, and that's when they notice a girl in a bra and underwear just chained to the wall, which is super fucked. And, um there is a tunnel exit that they find that leads right to the street. So this is like a perfect setup for a psycho. He's got his own entryway to go in, bring these girls, do what he wants with them, and then bring them out. And uh, obviously, when he was discovered, he came back and bricked up this wall with his last victim inside it, which is so horrifying that he was just going to leave her there to die.
2: Well, yeah, because it adds to it because that's the thing. Like, he is he is releasing these women. He is not, yeah. quote unquote, a murderer, but he knows there's someone in there and he was willing to let her die. Like, yeah, are you a murderer? But I don't, it's just, it's all fucked. Yeah. I think maybe he was
1: just like scrambling because now he knows the cops are eventually gonna find out what's up with him. Yeah, I've but...
2: said this before and I'll say it again. Like, why can't you just make the room nice? Like I don't get it. Like you can't I just know. put one toilet in there that flushes. It's just so annoying. I guess the flushing is a noise. Well, but that's I, a whole and that's a whole plumbing issue. But like I just yeah, don't get I don't why it has to be the worst possible way to live.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's horrific. Like a pillow would kill you. Like I I just <sighs> I don't get it. Right right um and munch finds all this guy's diaries too because of course all these psychos they diary and they fucking chronicle every awful crime that they do because i don't know what they think they're like stephen king of their own crimes and um when we are back at the precinct we find out that the victim that they found is dehydrated and pretty sick so they won't be able to talk to her for a while but it sounds like she's gonna make it which is good news and um Huang is explaining, you know, he's doing his psychological profile of Gorman and he's like, by marrying these women, he owns them. And Stabler's like, yeah, this guy is a collector. Like, he collects toilet paper, magazines, women. And this very much... If you haven't watched Dexter New Blood and you are planning to watch it, please fast forward 30 seconds. This reminds me of this guy in Dexter New Blood who is collecting women. He kills them and then he, like... um, embalms them so he can
2: collect them in literal trophy cases like he's collecting women. So One of the wildest twists. Like that's the thing like Dexter New Blood definitely had moments where I was taken out or didn't love it or wasn't and then but always so twisted. Twisted yeah. and good and pushes it to the limits and that kill room was so good. It's just um, I love it. I love we'll Dexter. see. We'll see what happens next season. You know Michael C. Know. C. Hall has a concert with his band March 22nd at Zebulon. Do we like the music? I don't know, but I'm going. <laughs> okay. Um, so
1: Liv notices as she's going through the pictures of the bride, she's like, hold on a minute. The dungeon that we just discovered has stone walls because it's a basement and the wedding photos here are taken against a plaster wall. So uh, he must have brought them somewhere else to marry them. Like, And then in walks Lauren White, who is a recurring character but I believe this is her first episode. And she is, um, she knows Elliot and they're very, they're chummy right away. She works for the um, NYC Administration of Children's Services. So she tells Elliot, I've got a client, 17 year old, who reported being raped in a dungeon. Her name is Neva. So now we're in interrogation with Neva. She's played by Kelly Stewart, who has been in all kinds of shit, like the Hot Tub Time Machine movies, On My Block, Chicago Med, et cetera. And she's explaining how Gorman made her call him Sir And he said that he owned her. And he made her keep diaries of everything she did, when she ate, when she peed, when he had sex with her. Um, Although, I mean, it is rape. But uh, And now we are basically cutting back and forth between Olivia re-interviewing Hillary and Neva being interviewed by Stabler. So we're seeing that their stories match up exactly, pretty much. And um, she said, he took me to a ratty hotel. Uh, The manager saw And Sir said, if I screamed, he'd kill my family. So, you know, typical stuff we hear all the time that he's going to kill my family. And he called the room the honeymoon suite. There were candles, flowers, cheap champagne. And then he took pictures and told her that they were man and wife. He made a toast and then said it was time to consummate the marriage. And he raped them. So Hillary remembers hearing bullhorns like they were near the river and helicopters. So the, you know... Kings of New York City geography, the SVU 16th Precinct, all put their heads together and they're like, this sounds like one of those single-room occupancy hotels um, on the West Side near Chelsea Piers, which is funny because they're probably literally at Chelsea Piers while they're talking about this. And then... um, He's like, that's got to be what it is. Let's go. Wait, where's Liv? And then they say, oh, she walked out with Hillary a while ago and Stabler's like, well, we can't wait on her. Let's just go. So they go to the Lydia Hotel and the desk clerk like wants a bribe and instead he gets a headlock from Finn, which is another fun. I I like when Finn takes matters into his own hands. He's like, I'm not giving you $20. I'm going to put you in a headlock. And (laughs) then he, um, the guy is like, yeah, Gorman's, well, they show him a picture of Gorman and he's like, yeah, he's here, but he's busy. And so they run up there. When they bust open the door, Olivia is standing over Gorman's dead body, bloody in the bed. Or maybe on the ground. And Stabler is like, what the fuck? And Liv is like, he was dead when I got here. And it's sketchy. It is like, they purposely, the show makes it sketchy. Like, Liv's by herself. Like, Why wouldn't she have called for backup? You know, like, then she kind of walks out of the room, like, I don't want to talk about it with you anymore. No, they can make
2: it as sketchy as they want, but I have no doubt in my mind that Benson did not kill this guy. Of course. Like, she wouldn't. Of course. I'm just pointing out the devices
1: they're using to make you try to doubt Benson. That maybe she feels so bad about her mistake that she fucking stabbed this guy, right? So, top of act three, the coroner is packing up Gorman's bod and Munch is giving us like the whole rundown. He's been l- dead less than an hour of a single stab wound to the chest with a smooth blade and it might be the same one that was used to cut his wiener off. And Stabler's I like... I believe you said wiener. I, I wrote dick so many times that I was trying to think of different things to write.
2: But now I just want a hot
1: dog. I'm sorry. And I know you like a big beef dog. I do. As you said on <laughs> a <four> previous episode. <laughs> I like a big beef dog. Um, so now Stabler and and uh, Benson are alone. And he's like, are you protecting her? So Stabler doesn't think she did it. He thinks she's covering for Hillary. And she goes, I left Hillary at her mother's house a couple hours ago, and I don't need your interrogation, Stabler. You know. And he's like, I don't get why you didn't come back to the squad. And she's like, look, I had a hunch that it was one of these ho- hotels, kind of like you guys came up with. I checked five hotels. This was number six. And Stabler's like, you did this all without backup. And he's pissed. And Elliot goes to her, you're out of control. And Liv goes, I never had control with this one, remember? And I didn't even realize. I always think when I think about this episode that it's called control because of the way this guy was controlling them, but it's also about Olivia and the other uh, control she has over the situation and her role. So interesting when they put. The I always title think in of the,
2: well, I think that's what the internet wants me to do, but I just think about the Leonardo DiCaprio meme now, where he's pointing. Have you ever seen what? the one where he gets up like he's the Howard Hughes pointing? No. Oh, yeah, it's a fun meme. And it's like usually like when you hear the title episode be said. Oh, and you're
1: like, oh, yes. Is that not from Gatsby?
2: Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
1: Oh, we made it back to Tarantino. I think I have seen that for sure. So... Olivia is beating herself up about this mistake and Elliot is like, get over it. And I just think it's, we always talk about cops fucking up cases in a lot of the research that we do. And like, I kind of like how in this show, they at least show that cops fuck up, you know? Like, I know it's a fantasy where the cops are totally not really how they are, but it's also how they're really not how they are in a bad way. Like, Liv did fuck up and at least she's trying to rectify it and feels bad. And I feel like Stabler is the kind of cop who would just double down and be like, Like, never admit that he did something wrong. He'd just be like, all right, I just got to fix it now, you know? Like, and I think that it just shows the different sides of them. She's kind of letting it eat eat at her. And he's just like, get over it. Like, let's just find the guy, you know? Or find who did this, I guess, because we've already found the guy. So now we're back at the precinct and all these women have come forward as victims of Gorman, okay? Like we're we're getting a little pan of the precinct and all these women are sitting there like one woman is like Cambodian and she's like telling her story to Finn in Cambo in in another language and Finn, I don't I don't think Finn's I don't think Finn speaks that language. So it's like a lot of them are just like telling their story. And unfortunately, Finn reveals to Olivia that all of these women were taken after Hillary, which causes her to feel even more guilt because every woman that's sitting in front of her would not have had this experience if Olivia had believed Hillary and they had investigated
2: the crime. Yeah, it sucks. The thing is, it's like everyone makes mistakes. It just these mistakes have really long lasting, huge consequences. Yeah. So
1: this kind of breaks Olivia. She goes to her locker and starts packing her shit, which I don't think we've seen her do before. Like, I don't think we've seen her almost quit before. And, uh, confronts her and she's just like, I can't do this anymore. And he's, like, trying to explain, like, look, this guy picks women who no one would believe. Like, he picks women specifically that he can just le- let go and leave back on the street and knows that no one will believe them. And he's like, there's always going to be perps and there's always going to be victims. And Olivia's like, the only reason I'm standing here is because I my mom let herself get raped. And I, you've never heard that from Olivia before. I've never heard her like blame her mom like that before. And it's weird to hear her like, vic- and he's like, since when do you victim blame? And she's like, my mother was drunk when she was attacked and so was Hillary. And I'm like, you know what? So am I most weekend nights. That doesn't mean anything. Like, it doesn't mean anything. And Cragen is like, the people responsible for these crimes are the perps. Like, not the victims, no matter how drunk or fucked up they were or whatever their pasts were. And Liv's saying, but the reason I didn't believe Hillary is because of my past with my mom and, like, that my mom was an alcoholic and that she was drunk when she got raped. And so... It's all connected. Um, And Cragen's like, okay, fine, quit. Throw away all the good you've done and all the good you will do over one mistake. And Liv looks like she got got and she sucks it up and grabs pictures of the brides and is like, let's go to Stabler. So crisis averted. I don't know if you guys, um, no spoiler, but she does not leave the squad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So now they're back in the tunnel in the grand center, and they're showing Samael, a.k.a. Samuel, the photos of these
2: brides. Who's now just a full-time informant?
1: Yeah. He's he's like, oh, hey, old cop friends, let's talk. Keep things dark. And uh, they show him this photo array of all these brides and say, which one is your angel? And he IDs Dun Dun Hillary. And so now, we're at this very upscale mod apartment of Juliet Barclay, and she's in a silky PJ and robe. And she's got a view of the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building, so not bad. And Hillary is there with some PJs on too, more of like a hippie silky, dippy, silky. Yeah, no. hers are more, no, Hillary's are more um, like she got them on a trip to Tibet. You know what I mean? That's like what the vibe was for me. But they're not as silky as her mom's. And then they tell them, hey, we found Gorman and he's dead. And she says, good, I hope he suffered. And then they're like, you killed him. And she denies it. She's like, I didn't do it. And her mom gets angry and is like, you can't take her. You can't take her. You can't do this to her. She's been through enough. So I'm kind of, it's nice to see that these two have kind of um, reconnected. And then Juliet confesses to the murder. She goes, take me. I killed the bastard. I had to protect my daughter. So they arrest Juliet while Hillary is protesting and being like, you can't take her. You can't take her. So now Juliet is in interrogation out of her silky robe PJ look. I don't know if they got her a sweatshirt or whatever, but she explains that Horace Gorman murdered my daughter's soul. I did what any mother would do. And they want to know how she knew where to find Gorman. And she said, last week, Hillary saw him leaving his apartment building and she was shocked. So she said, so I followed him for a few days and then I castrated him at the subway station. I didn't want to kill him in case he was holding another victim, smart. The day before, the day he was killed, he never went to the dungeon and she remembered that he would hang out with all these quote unquote hookers at this dingy hotel. So when the cops told Hillary that Gorman was on the lam, like she knew exactly where he was. She went to the hotel, knocked on his door and asked if he wanted company. When he let her in, she says she stabbed him. And she goes, there was so much blood. And then she says she threw the knife down the sewer grate a few blocks away. So she's got a pretty good story lined up. Now we're in Judge Petrovsky's chambers with the Dream Team, okay? It's Petrovsky. It's Casey Novick. And it's Cindy Lauper's husband, Lionel Granger. Love this. So Granger is arguing that Juliet's confession is a patent violation because, and the patent violation is essentially that what we've talked about on this podcast before, the cops are not allowed to, without a warrant, arrest someone in their home. They need to step out of their home. So what we saw in the episode was a little bit walking the line there because they did kind of k- bring her out of her apartment and then they arrested her, but she didn't walk out of her apartment really on her own accord. So that's what he's arguing. And he, there he's kind of right, I hate to say, you know, like I I love, I we love our girl, Casey Novak, but I think this guy's, she would argue the same thing if it was reversed for her. And, um, she's saying she wasn't arrested until she stepped outside. And he's like, yeah, but she was intimidated and dragged out by cops. And Novak's like, no, she volunteered. But Petrovsky's like, Novak, come on. I'm throwing out this confession. And then Granger is like, all right, baby, let's talk plea deal. And Novak is like, scram, buddy. I've got the spontaneous admission in the apartment and I think that'll be just fine. Thank you so much for coming out. And then in the courtroom, Novak is making her argument that even though Gorman, Novak's wearing a wild outfit in this episode. It's such a long skirt. She looks like a Hasidic Jewish wife.
2: I don't think I noticed it. Oh, it
1: was like black and then like a long black pleated skirt to below the knee. I was like, (laughs) Casey, this I think they later let her dress a little hotter.
2: Because I'm also extra sensitive to Orthodox outfits and I always feel like I'm dressed like an Orthodox Jew or like a Mennonite on a night out. So <laughs> I do feel sad I didn't notice.
1: Meanwhile, you never are. Um but she, I'll just say, it was just very black, pilgrim like, you know, sort of... Uh, we like some just,
2: skin. We want skin. Yeah.
1: She just usually is dressed a little bit more chic, that's all. And so she's making the argument that even though Gorman was a monster who absolutely should have been sentenced to life in prison and died in prison, she cannot prosecute him because Juliet Barclay went vigilante. And no one is above the law. Murder is murder no matter who or why. And, you know, we all know our girl Casey takes that shit very seriously. Seriously. And then Granger is like, I agree with everything Miss Novak is saying. Here's the thing. We don't know who killed him. There's another suspect, someone with means, motive, and opportunity, and that person is Detective Olivia Benson. This episode is so fucking wild. This guy's fully just trying to frame Olivia for this. Not really. You know, I don't think he would ever say that she really, really did it, but he's trying to create reasonable doubt because she did have all this access and it really could have been her on the timeline. Novak objects. It's like, objection and the whole courtroom is like, hub, 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 while we're on Olivia's face as we go out to commercial. Coming back, act four, at the precinct, Novak's like, I know what he's doing. He's trying to create reasonable doubt. Why don't you just admit, go on the stand, admit you screwed up and went to the hotel alone, but testify that you didn't kill him. And then uh, Novak walks away and lives like, she didn't even ask me if I did it. And then she says to Stabler, and neither did you. And Stabler goes, I know you didn't do it. You would have shot the bastard. So I like that they know each other that well. But also, she might not have shot him because it's, well, actually, yeah, what she could have done is say he attacked me and shot him. Um, Back in court, Olivia is testifying, explaining how she was checking with all these motel desk clerks and that she was going to call for backup if she got a positive ID. But then the Lydia Hotel, she went in and the guy goes, yeah, he's here. And she was worried he was with another victim. So she said she ran up there and she saw Gorman lying on the floor dead when she walked in. And when he goes, she says, did you kill him? And she goes, I did not kill him. Like, it's very, it's very believable, I think. But maybe that's just because I'm obsessed with Olivia Benson. Um now on cross-examination, Granger's not pulling any punches. He brings up the fact that six victims were taken because Olivia didn't believe Hillary. And she's like, well, actually that happened because Gorman is a psychopath. And he's still like just leaning into the, like, you did it angle. And he's like, why didn't you radio for backup? And she's like, I was about to. The desk clerk, and he goes, but the desk clerk said there was 10 minutes between your arrival and your partner's arrival. And she's like, that guy was playing cards to fucking, he doesn't notice anything. Like, who ca- like." irrelevant and then he brings up how benson has quote-unquote murdered two other people and she goes i shot two suspects who were armed and about to commit murder and he's like hmm, two killings no charges third time's a charm um at the precinct they're all brainstorming because this isn't really looking very good like they're trying to figure out like how we can get the jury to disregard that it could have been Olivia. Like, even if there's a small, small chance, that's the whole concept of reasonable doubt right there. And so Munchwaltz is in with this little nerdy man who's so cute and, like, looks so excited to be there. And he is a forensics metallurgist. And when... So he knows about metals and shit. So... Apparently, when the knife stabbed Gorman, it left traces of a metal on his sternum and the metal was gold. And this little dork is like so excited. He's how often do you think he gets called? He was probably like, Yes, I'm useful. And he um says a bunch of nerd shit and then finally reveals that the knife is from the mid-ninth century. And Benson and Stabler are like, Yeah, like one you might find at Juliet's antique shop. So now we're at the antique shop. This is another episode where there's just so much going on, so many locations. At the antique shop, we're with Cutie O'Halloran, RIP, and he's there scanning knife after knife of all these antiquity, all these antique knives for blood. And he's striking out. He's like, sorry, I haven't found anything. Then Finn comes out of nowhere with some Indiana Jones knife that he found under the sink. And boom, it's been cleaned, but it definitely has blood on it. And there's some blood in like the carvings on the handle. Back in court, Granger is still trying to implicate Benson in his cross-examination of Hillary, but Hillary's like, my mom couldn't have done it. And when they confront her with the whole knife thing, she confesses. She's like, I did it. I stole the knife from my mom's store and I used it to castrate and kill Gorman. And she tells her mom, you don't have to protect me anymore. And she says she still has a key to the store because she used to steal some of the shit from her mom's store to sell for drugs. And that's how she got access. And they've all got a story. Everybody's got all their details wrapped up. So then Novak goes to the bench with Granger and is like, to Petrovsky, you got to give me a mistrial. Like the, the, we can't, you know, as they say, too loud a bell to unring. Like we can't, we can't uh, make the jury not have heard this confession. Oh, and then so Petrovsky asks Novak, do you have reasonable doubt about Juliet being guilty? And she goes, I have to admit that I do. And then she, that leaves no choice but for the people to dismiss the case against... Juliet Barclay, which means Double Jeopardy does attached and she cannot be tried again for this crime. But now they have to arrest Hillary. So Olivia is saying, I know Hillary made her own choices, but it doesn't mean I have to be happy about her going away for murder. And then Novak enters and goes, she's not. And Juliet's attorney just shared this with me. And it's this VHS tape, which is what that is in case you're like uh, 20 and you haven't don't know what that is. It's a VHS tape. So Next scene we see is Olivia standing in the um, interrogate into in a cell in the holding cell, going venti whole milk latte. Sounds like a lot of dairy, and she says that to uh, that's Hillary, so and much she goes whole milk, oh <laughs> yeah, whole milk in a latte. That's like a that's venti. like venti. That sounds like a fart, Ugh. and so she goes, "That's what you ordered at the coffee shop when your mother murdered Gorman. We saw you." we can't arrest your mom now because of double jeopardy. And Hillary's like, I don't mind going to jail for castrating him. So we know Hillary's the one that did the castration, but we think now we know that her mom's the one that did the killing. She followed him for days to kill him, but he saw her on the subway. She confronted him and said he was, she was going to tell the whole world what he did. And he said, go ahead. No one's going to believe a whoring junkie. Ugh. She hits him and drags him back to the platform. And she goes, I had the perfect chance to kill him but I realized castration would make him suffer even more. And then she just said, I couldn't let my mother go to jail. And then Novak was like, yeah, but she belongs there. And no one gives you the right to lie or your mother to murder. And Samantha Mathis goes, well, he'll never torture another woman again. Will he?
2: Seems more important. That's, yeah. And that's Dick Wolf, baby. I've said this once and I'll say it again. I am pro-vigilante justice. Yeah. Thank you, Kara and i think you'll all be saddened by how much <laughs> um overlap with the real case i have exists. i am going into this totally blind i know nothing about this
1: case so i'm excited
2: all right we'll see you guys soon okay so this case i've actually been wanting to cover for a very very long time um, because it has one of my favorite slash least favorite things, which is cops fucking up over and over and over again. And so we have an Olivia Benson moment here where all these women were not believed. um, and so I've wanted to cover this because not that I get glee or satisfaction, but I do like I'd like to talk about why cops suck, yeah. I do. I well, wish like, it wasn't did, true. I wish it remember wasn't when true.
1: We did the Alaskan um, butcher, Baker butcher guy or yes. whatever. And it was like, one of the only reasons they believe the girl they found there was because she was like naked in the fucking middle of the highway with like a tire iron around her neck or something like that. It's like, that's but they're like,
2: well, that does look kind of weird. I guess we can believe this girl, you know, like. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they didn't like search thoroughly Ed Kemper's house and there was a head in his closet, like. Oh my God. Yeah. I would, I wish it wasn't true, but I, it does, you know, I like having ammunition for myself when I have to get into arguments or any sort of situations out in the world to like have these cases to be like, no, they fuck up constantly and let's stop calling them heroes and giving them parades. Like, do your fucking uh-huh. jobs. So, anyways. This happens in the suburbs of Syracuse, New York. Um, the criminal here we're talking about is John Jamelski. Um, he's a retired handyman, and he was a well-known eccentric. So a freak, okay? He was known as a resident crank and freak. A Republican who rarely missed an election. So I don't know. He's like a Karen, you know?
1: hmm
2: Junk hoarding, like Goris Horman. He, uh, was, a, he, <laughs> he was very into pigeon feeding.
1: Oh, Jesus.
2: Yeah. You're you're if you feed
1: pigeons in Venice, I don't care where you're doing it, you are feeding rats. You are feeding flying rats. I do not think it's cute to put bird seed on yourself in San Marco Piazza in Venice and have a bunch of rats eat it off of your jacket.
2: And I stand by that. No one that's doing well in life is, <laughs> you know, summoning <laughs> pigeons. It's not happening. And so yeah, the town thought he was irksome, but like he was seldom menacing. Like no one No one was scared of him. Um, But we're also not talking casual junk hoarding. We're talking the police, when they got into his home, found 13,000 bottles. Oh my God. And it's a well to do suburb. So, like, when this (laughs) crimes came out, it was kind of like shocking. I know what you're thinking, Kara. I know (laughs) what you're thinking. You don't have to be, we're on the Zoom. I see your face. (laughs) Tell them.
1: I was just going to bring up when I moved Lisa out of her L.A. apartment, I did find no nowhere close to 13,000, but I found probably two dozen
2: water bottles with one sip left. Yeah, it's comforting. <laughs> just 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 strewn about. Yeah, I'm right now I'm looking at four. Yeah. OK, well then. So, yeah. Yeah getting better and better. Oh, fine. Getting better. <laughs> and they all have just a little bit. My car is filled with bottles. I don't know what it is. I'll bring it up in therapy next week. But I yeah, I don't know why I need bottles around me in my car <laughs> just crunching around. So, uh, this guy, you know, we're talking about uh, what a weirdo, what a junk guy. You're like, "What? He is a horrific man. He kidnapped five women and girls and kept them as sex slaves in a homemade bunker." The concrete bunker was two rooms, and barren. he built it in 1988, and it was linked to his basement by a seven-foot-long tunnel underneath his backyard.
0: Wow. Um, And
2: they later did ask the man who delivered all the concrete, like, what did you think was happening? He was like, I don't know, some rooms. So the concrete (laughs) guy was not suspicious. Town officials, of course, that they never knew about the underground structures, but it would be crazy if they did. Like, what? You're not going to register yeah, a kidnapped, torture, rape dungeon. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Hi, I'm here to permit my rape dungeon. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: What's the fee? Uh, can I write a check?
1: Like,
2: come on. And his go-to answer, if anyone asked about it, he said it was a storm shelter. Anyone that has crawled through it post-investigation, everything said, you know, it's windowless, dank, and claustrophobic, and utterly terrifying. So it was a 12 by 12 um, room, and it it was eight feet high. And there was graffiti. I wonder who he got to do some graffiti art down there. (laughs) He's like, I have a Banksy down there. (laughs) Yeah. So just, and and again, like, disgusting. There's no comforts. There was a strip of foam for sleeping, a television set, and a Bible. (sighs) And then the second room had a portable toilet and then a bathtub that was filled with a garden hose. And the Daily News called him the, the Dungeon Dragon, which sounds like something that Jared would like to be called. In no, his and games. also that's too cool of a name.
1: Like, yeah. you're not the Dungeon Dragon. Yeah, like that's <laughs> going to make him sound like he's Dungeons. Dragons aren't real. So that's like.
2: All right. Well, we got Kara Wiling out.
1: I just don't—I don't like giving somebody, like, a name like Ted Bundy was, like, the mountain murderer. Like, it's not, like, a cool thing to give someone a nickname. Agree, agree,
2: agree. Um, so, um, basically, he would snatch women off the streets over a span of 15 years, from 88 to 2002. And literal snatching, okay? This isn't hyperbole. Snatching. He would cruise in his Mercury Comet Um, seeking women from the wrong side of the track. So again, picking women that no one would believe or care about or miss. Um, He imprisoned them, raped them, and he kept one of them as long as three years. The victim's age range was about 14 to 53 years old, three teenagers and two women. He picked up runaways, addicts, young girls with no, no strong anchors. His wife lived upstairs the whole time. Just like Fritzl. Yeah, He the wife lived upstairs the whole time he had victims. And not only was she just upstairs chilling, she had cancer. And he started doing this after he couldn't have sex with his wife who had cancer. So he that's like the catalyst. So if his wife didn't have cancer, <laughs> so let's blame this cancer woman. I mean... Now, this is from the Daily News. So I don't know how credible the Daily News is or not. But... In the 80s, it's said that he had an open affair with a teenager who he brought to family functions as his wife sat by awkwardly. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe he was abusive to her too, you know? Like, maybe she was like a person that was like, I can't.
2: But the whole family events bringing it to Like, because everyone's like, oh, he's just a silly guy of grump of a guy with cans. And it's like, but he is doing weird shit. Like, like I've, had a fa- I've had a family
1: member bring an affair to a family event, but their wife was not there. We all were there, and we're like, this is your friend,
2: but the wife was not there.
1: Which that is even like fucked, because now he's
2: implying, Im- Im- implicating all of you. Now you have to hold this. Your yeah. family members lie. Because yeah. we had a friend who would always cheat all the time, and I had to have kind of a... Uh, an intervention with him because I was like, that's not fair. We're hanging out with this girl constantly. You want us to be friendly with her and yet we know you're openly cheating on her and it's not yeah. fair to us. Like, I don't yeah, like yeah. to be put in this position. And I was like, and you have to stop you have, like lying to all of us. And then he lied to me while I was doing an intervention about him lying and cheating. And I go, <laughs> I know you're lying to me right now. He goes, oh, you knew about that? I go, that's what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> like, you're lying to your friends, and we all know, and we talk to each other, and it's fucked yeah. up. But whatever. People have problems. So anyways, um, and this relationship with the teen, I guess, inspired his new kidnapping, rape hobby. I, I don't know. His wife yeah. did eventually die of cancer, and then he continued the crime. So you can't really blame... Because you can't fuck your cancer ridden wife, and then when she's dead, and you could cheat on her. Also, you're already having affairs. I mean, I don't know why I'm asking. I don't know why I'm asking this guy to have like a moral high ground or make sense in any <laughs> yeah. of his behaviors or ethics. Like, I'm just confused why people in the town were were shocked about this when it seems like he was a shitty guy before yeah. the crimes came out. Um, he said that he would hold his victims captive to avoid STDs. Because he needed a cheat, but he didn't want to get STDs. And so that's why he held him captive. I mean, you can explain anything away if you're a psychopath. Um, he would chain the women to a, st- and, uh, to a steel like rod um, for 12 hours or more a day. And then, you know, obviously raped. I already mentioned that. I don't know why I mentioned it again. Mm-hmm. And like in the show, he determined when the women could bathe, sleep, and when they were forced to have sex. He had total control over their lives, said County mm. Sheriff Kevin E. Walsh. He also said that in his 40 years on the job that this is the most bizarre case. And it, that seems to make light of what happened. Bizarre isn't the word that yeah. I would.
1: Yeah, how about horrific? How about, uh, yeah, humanity at its bottom? Yeah.
2: Bizarre. You know what's, biz- that's not bizarre. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, in elementary school, we, our principal's name was Doctor Mr. Bizarre. I don't know. Well, I don't know I was about to say doctor. He was just a mister. Mr. Bazaar. Mr. Bizarre. I love that. Yeah. That's a fun... I think he was like a good principal. Character. I didn't really yeah. have any issues with him. Um. Anyways, but after he would get tired of each woman, he uh would blindfold them and return her home. And of course, did the classic, if you go to the cops, I'll kill you and kill your family and whatever threats. But he wasn't a killer. And so that's like a strange thing. And I would like to see studies, psychology, information on this type of behavior of the letting mm. go? I'm curious.
1: Yeah. Because it I is think a risk. For, yeah. For some people like Ted Bundy, the thrill was all in the murdering. And I think this man is a rapist. And he, he, yeah, he just, a lot of times I think that a rapist will kill just to cover their tracks. And I guess he thought, I'm scary enough. If I scare them, they'll never go to the cops yeah
2: Um, so September 1988 he lured 14 year old victim into his car Uh, her family reported her missing but then uh, they were shocked when she just came home in 1989 so the victim uh, later said that he threatened to kill her brother so she lied and said she had run away from home and then in 1995 he kidnapped his next teenage victim so there was long breaks Um, it was another 14 year old victim she was held for two years And when she went home, she told her mother, but was so terrified that she didn't report the crime. Wow. In 1997, he abducted his third victim, a 53-year-old Vietnamese immigrant, and she was held for five months. She went to the police, but said cops were skeptical of her allegations and only made a cursory investigation. I wonder
1: if there was like a language barrier too, and the cops were just like, "We don't know what she." You, you know what I mean? Like in Syracuse, like I don't know if they got like a Vietnamese interpreter. You know?
2: Yeah. Oh, or they were racist too. You're giving yeah. them a more a yeah. more credit than I think they deserve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, just in the
1: episode, there was a Cambodian immigrant. You know, yeah. so it's it's like yeah,
2: yeah. This is really a lot of parallels to the episode, mm-hmm. we're like very closely. Neil Bear, I think, found this information and <laughs> gave it a gave it a close close rewrite. Um, So in 2001, um, his wife died and he grabbed his fourth victim, who was a single mother who was 26 years old at the time. And for me, I'm like, what happened to the kid? She's a single mom.
0: Yeah. She
2: hurried to the police after she was released after two months and she didn't know his name or address. And since she was blindfolded, like she didn't have the information that they needed, um, but did give a very helpful tip. She told them the car was a 1975 Mercury Comet. Okay. So there was one in the area, but it was someone else's. His was a 1974, but the cops didn't bother to broaden their records or search not even a little bit to help find this person. Like, what the fuck?
1: Oh my God.
2: They would just believe this eyewitness account of a 1995 and it was a 94. Like, lazy, lazy. And at this point, he was 67. And so he was popping Viagra daily to maintain an obsessive rape regime. October 2002, he took his next victim, a 16-year-old who he called Mika. He got caught because of this victim. She was 16 years old. She was held captive for four to six months. But she managed to call her sister when he took her along on an errand to his weekly visit to the bottle depot to hand in his cans and bottles. She I'm c- surprised he's parting with cans and bottles. I thought he was collecting them. <laughs> it, that's I know. Oh my god! He had so many. It was his like main job was collecting cans and bottles, and, I, and making money off of them and hoarding them. I just, I just don't get how. Th- I get it because the cops suck, but like to have people that are this dirty and careless and gross to be able to get away with such like horrific crimes for so long is so strange yeah. to me. Um. But she convinced him that she was under his spell and he believed that they were friends. And so he allowed her out of the bunker and into the house, still with padlocks, but like they had a thing going and he started to take her out on outings, bowling, bar where she sang karaoke and always the Bottle Redemption Center <laughs> it was his number one hangout spot. So April 9th, 2003, she managed to like finagle a brief call to her sister. While they were at this bottle depot, she asked to use the phone to call a church and he fell for it. And I bet that's like ego thinking that she was under his spell. The girl actually called her sister and he was arrested as he as he and this girl sat in his car. So he was busted on April 3rd, 2003. Well, the other news said April 9th. So April 2003, I don't know if it was the third <laughs> or the ninth. Or maybe, yeah, I have no idea. Like, That's why it's hard, no matter how credible the sources are. It's like, I don't know how credible they are. How are there two fucking different dates to his apprehension? Yeah. It's annoying. Okay, so the bottle guy is the worst and has the worst quote ever. And he was like, oh, I was so shocked. Like, I've known John forever. I like John comes with his bottles every fucking week. So he was a regular. But this is the bottle guy's quote. And this is from the New York Times. I feel bad for the victims, but I also feel bad for John. I know there's a good guy in there somewhere.
1: Yeah. Like, let's it's check like, the bottle though. So, it's so intr- ingrained to try to find like an excuse for like a fellow man. Like, I really do think
2: that. How do you want to find goodness in someone that kidnapped and raped five people? Like, I don't get it. Yeah. Built a bunker, calculated, held for months, threatened. Yeah. Like, what are we talking about? He
1: also didn't just like transform his basement. Like he dug a tunnel. Every day that man went in and dug a fucking tunnel and was like, this is for my rape dungeon. Like every day. Like he was committed to this.
2: And this bottle guy's like, I feel bad for him. What about the good parts of his personality? Yeah. Like, what the fuck are you even talking about? Yeah, Why? In the days after his arrest, he really didn't deem any of his behavior wrong and thought the sex was consensual. Uh, <sighs> but if it's consensual, why do you need to lock someone up? Like, what are we, what is happening? Right. But didn't Fritzel say
1: something like that too? He was kind of like, my daughter wanted it or I needed to do it to keep my daughter, like, safe from the rest of the world. Like, they all have fucking some wacko idea.
2: Also in the days after uh, the arrest, three other women came forward to say they too were being held hostage and sexually abused in the bunker, which leads to the question of whether the police did all they could to stop and prevent these crimes. Uh, Two years before he was apprehended, one victim told them about her experience. Kate Flannery, a director of the Rape Crisis Center of Syracuse, said that the victim in question was a substance abuser and had trouble convincing the authorities that her tale was the truth. Oh um, the gosh. cops say they couldn't do much because she didn't know where or by who. And it's like, yeah, you're supposed to figure that out. You're you're expecting a kidnap victim to le- to give you the address? Like, what are you talking yeah. about? Also, um, what I think hindered the case was there's a six-foot fence that was built around his property by a developer who owned nice houses around his shitty ass house with all this junk and cans and so they they it made the neighborhood look bad so these developers built a fortress around his house so no one could see what he was doing. So it was kind of like he had oh secrecy God. too. And then they also found dozens of photographs of girls that the authorities still need to identify. So we just know about the victims that we know about, but like there were photos of other women and he's a victim blamer. Obviously he said that these women were very promiscuous and they manipulated him. He told the Syracuse post standard. No, I never considered anybody a kidnap victim because he didn't d- demand cash ransoms and he knew it was wrong. He just thought it was detaining somebody or unlawful imprisonment, not kidnapping. So he's playing semantics games with crimes. I mean, he's a bad psycho. He's a Teresa oh Judice, God. like honestly. Yeah. <sighs> the first chief assistant district attorney, Rick Turnfield, said that he is, that this guy... Um, Jake Jamelki or whatever, John, whatever his name is. He's a very controlling, very manipulative, and very smart guy. He knows that legally he's done something wrong, but I don't think in his heart he really thinks he's done anything wrong. So that was the district attorney that said that. Jamelski took a plea agreement, and because of that, it didn't include charges of rape, even though it, like, it is rape um but he didn't want to be charged for rape because he didn't believe it so he took this plea deal um because he's still going to be there for life so it's like yeah. it's kind of like if you no one has to take the stand there's no trial he's going to be locked up and yeah, maybe yeah. it wasn't important I guess that's worth it, it if you don't have to the put rape. the woman
1: through testifying I guess that's worth it yeah
2: um but I I obviously understand like the disappointment of not being charged with things that you obviously did. And it would probably be like per rape as well. You know, it would be yeah. a lot of charges. Um, but after months and months, he did admit, he, he's like, well, I did some things wrong. And the judge Ooh. agreed, obviously. So yeah, he pled guilty. Um, and at his sentencing, he cried and asked for leniency and said he was sorry and, and like about how it affected. But the judge did not give a fuck. I uh, love Judge Anthony Alloy who rejected his request and said that he hoped that he died in prison. So I love that. And the judge said, uh, called him a sick coward. He said, you're an evil man. You are a kidnapper and rapist, a master manipulator of people and the truth. But your reign of terror is over. Like, does the judge plan that? Like, does he rehearse it? Like, is he waited for this moment to fucking rip at someone? Yeah,
1: I think they probably write their comments out, right? I, I don't they know. they probably do. I think they probably write their, like, final comments. I don't think that many judges are, like, good at improv or except Rainey is speaking.
2: But maybe. Um, he So the judge gave him 18 to life, but could have given him 125 years. But he took the plea. But it's still 18 to life. Um, he had a possibility for parole in 2021. That's a tease. Stay tuned. Give me a second. So... He's like 86 around uh, 2021. Uh, part of the plea, though, is that his assets are to be used to compensate his victims. And you're thinking this junkyard fool. Where does yeah. he have money? Like, this is like the show. Even though he was a junkyard bottle man, he was not poor. He actually had around a million dollars in mostly real estate investments and all the money went to the victims.
1: Wow, that's great. Yeah. Oh, that's like silver, little silver lining.
2: There's also rumor that he inherited money. Um, and he also got a giant payday when the developers bought the land around his place to buy, uh, to build luxury homes. So that's like where his money came from. So the proceeds from the house sale um, yeah. also went to the victims and the bunker was demolished. But so that money also went there. He is now currently at the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York. Ooh, escape from Dannemora, baby. yes. Um and you mentioned that case in this episode about the wall the empty wall and like what's behind oh, the yes. wall Oh yes. Yeah. So, I found an article from February 9th, 2021 about his virtual parole hearing that happened December 15th, 2020. They denied his parole, of course. Um, Yeah. He still denies he did anything wrong and refuses treatment. And that's basically it. Like, they need you to learn a lesson. Um, The parole board ruled that his release would be incompatible with the welfare of society. Um, Also, after being in prison for 18 years, he did state... I had a bunker and people knew I had a bunker. We partied a lot there and I was approached every now and then by someone that said it would be a good idea for a friend of hers that's a runaway to be there rather than out on the streets and that they came and as a trade-off, we had sex. That's so fucking
1: Dexter Newblood because the guy would get these girls that were runaways and be like, you want a nice warm bed? You want a bottle of champagne and some strawberries? Like, and they were like, they thought they hit the fucking jackpot. Oh my God.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. He also made requests in his official prison record to state certain things and none of them really I don't understand but he wanted everyone to know that he gave his victims scented candles. Wow. Okay, thanks for that. Yeah. Um and that he's like oh and I still had contacts with the victims once they left. Like we're friends. Like he truly does not oh he's my God. a bad person. I'm... Like there's nothing really to it. Um I'm not the I'm not the bottle dispense guy. I don't see <laughs> much goodness here. <laughs> The only thing he closely got to admitting was that maybe he caused them direct harm. Um, he said, I probably inadvertently, probably, yes. Yes, I could have talked them into returning to their families sooner. But when it did happen, you know, they gathered their stuff together. We jumped in a car and I drove them to their families. Like what? Sorry, I make him sound like a Valley girl. If you Google him, why he's would not you, a Valley girl. Why would you fucking, why is there a lock on the door then? Like, you know. To protect just, them. you mean, know, it's it's nonsense. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah.
1: Nonsense. It's fucking
2: insane. Insane. It's nonsense. But that's what I got for you guys. And I hope you hated every second of it. And I hate him and I hate the police. Um, but I'm impressed with Dick Wolf and SVU and Neil Bear to create such a <sighs> intertwined episode.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa, for all of that. And stick around because we have an amazing interview coming up. You guys, I was truly gagged when this guest said that they would do our podcast. She has a resume that you would not believe. I grew up watching her. Um, She was the star of movies like Pump Up the Volume. She was a voice in Fern Gully. She was in the original Little Women and American Psycho and recently had a recurring role on Billions. She's truly working, booked, blessed, and so talented. And you guys knew her today as Hillary Barclay. Guys, the one and only Samantha Mathis. Yay, Oh, my Samantha. gosh, Samantha. We cannot believe we're talking to an SVU queen. Oh, my goodness. I mean.
0: Thank you. I have, I have
1: been on the show a few times. <laughs> yeah, and you're never a tiny part. In fact, I remember when I watched Swimming with Sharks... The the most recent one you did, when I saw your name in the credits and then the way that they were sort of like not featuring you at the beginning, I was like, oh, well, now I just know she did this. (laughs) Like, I know that she's involved because they're not bringing Samantha Mathis in to just be an assistant that I see in one scene or like not an assistant, but like a side character that I see in one scene. So unfortunately, your celebrity is ruining plot lines.
0: Oh, well, I suppose that's just how it goes on Law & Order. You know if a certain level of actor is on the show, they are either a perpetrator or a victim. (laughs) And since we started with that
2: episode, The Swimming with Sharks, I really love the scene where you have all these potions and bottles behind you. Did it look as pretty in person or was (laughs) it just a set and movie magic?
0: Oh, no, it was actually really beautiful. Yeah, I know they, 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 they surprised me. I mean, not that they wouldn't have incredible scents, but yeah, I walked in there and I was like, oh, nice, nice lab. Very, very pretty. <laughs> so many different color potions. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, and then my thing that I just need to say, you're very, very lucky. And I don't know if you know this, you got to work, you, got, you were there for the Stabler years, the Amaro years, and the Carisi years. So you got to work with each of the hunk detectives which Mm. not very many people (laughs) can have had time with each of those men. So kind of thrilling. Do you have a favorite?
0: Oh, golly. I think they're all hunky and delicious. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just lucky to keep being asked back over the years yeah so how did like how did your s v u
1: like journey start like when you did control season five? The show's like sort of on a roll, maybe not quite as well known as it is now like did you watch it in advance or were you like, yeah, I'll just do this, or you know what was what was the vibe with that one?
0: I'm pretty sure at that point, Warren Light had been on the show, and you know Warren was on it, and then he stepped away from it and then he came back to it so I'm pretty sure because Warren and I had met when he was looking to produce another play he'd uh, written after Sideman and, and then pivoted to Law & Order. So I'm pretty sure that's when when I was asked to do it. But you know what? With COVID and the last two years, my memory is just I know. What is time? So what is time? <laughs> Who was I in 2005? Who am I now? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I was certainly familiar with the show, but uh, I hope I don't disappoint anyone. I've ne- I was never a like weekly junkie. That's fine. That's plenty of people. But plenty but, of people say that. But like, it is obviously a notch in any actor's belt to be on the mothership or any one of the law and orders. It's like, as particularly if you're a New York actor, which I've now been for um, going on 13 years, it's like, you can't be a New York actor and not get on one of the line orders. It's just, it's required. How
2: was the wedding dress photo shoot? I wonder if they, do you think they Photoshopped it or do you think, or did they make you guys like put on wedding dresses? I found it for you. I found,
0: there's you and Oh my god! Oh my god! Wow! With the dog collar on? Yeah. Yes. I'm wearing the yes. dog collar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure they put that wedding dress on me. I'm pretty sure that's the real deal. Yeah.
1: I love that because they're, you're all wearing the same one. So many actresses must have had to pop into that thing for a quick photo shoot. They probably had it cut same. down the
0: back, and they just slipped yeah. it on each of us. Yeah. Yeah, and then like took like grip clips and just. Close it up on the back.
1: Oh, yeah. like when you're shopping for a real wedding dress. Um, totally. So, okay, th- that's so funny. Um, but so can, can I ask more about Jacqueline Bessette? Like, what was it like working with her? Like, I was in like... In silk
2: pajamas. I like... There's a scene where you both are in silk robes. And I really... That must have been maybe fun.
0: Oh, my <laughs> God. I mean, it was just... The whole time was just like, pinch me. I can't believe I'm acting with Jacqueline Bessette playing her daughter. She's so classy and beautiful and just yeah. a total total professional and a, a, and a class act a real you know example of someone who's had incredible fame and um and is just a grounded good actress
2: yeah amazing your episode reasonable doubt um was pretty star studded too you had you, there was a bit a lot of guest actors in it did you guys fraternize enjoy each other reasonable doubt
0: was the one where i was playing a version of mia farrow that was like the woody allen episode oh my god yeah broadly winford and 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 jeffrey and 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 um celia keenan Bolger, who's like such a genius theater actress yeah that that was a ridiculous one there were definitely some fun days and the you know they have um have you guys ever visited this, the set? No. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. We, yeah.
1: started this, we started this podcast in COVID. So we're hoping that's a future visit. We fantasize.
0: Amazing.
2: We want to find yep. a dead body.
0: Well, um, you know, you should go. Warren Light's on Twitter a lot. So, you know, maybe you should get on Twitter and just let him know that we did an interview and at him and, and see if he responds. But so, yeah, there's like a uh, uh, an area, a long hallway, uh, with everyone's dressing rooms. Um, so that was a fun episode to, uh, just, you know, lots of like being in the hallways and going in and having chit chats and as, as people do, uh, when you're shooting and you're in between scenes, but that was definitely a star studded collection of people in the hallways.
2: Yeah, and you got I'm to not- do a scene in the courtroom, which is kind of one of the iconic SVU moments. Um, do they like? Is everyone really sitting there, or do they cut? Oh yeah, like, film it in sections. It's okay. Wow.
0: I mean, they film in one direction and then they film in the other. Um, but everyone's there. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes they'll excuse someone for turnaround purposes. Do you guys know what that means? Like, there's a certain amount of time that they have to give us off between when we finish at the end of the day and when we come back the next morning. So, you know, it's possible that, like... I mean, they definitely shoot the direction of Mariska first. You know, they're going (laughs) to get... (laughs) <laughs> they're gonna get the the queen's coverage first, right? <laughs> so I'm not gonna lie. I it, it may be possible that by the time they turned around and and it was you know twelve hours later, because these scenes just take forever to shoot. You know, I mean they're yeah. super they're super fun and iconic, but they're also like every single character gets like a wide shot, a medium shot, a close-up shot. And, you know, it's a big show. So they've got two or three cameras going at the same time. But what I'm trying to say is it's possible that maybe someone wasn't on the other side of my coverage um, by the time they got to cross-examining me. Um, and and I do recall that they saved my cross-examination and the direction of the bench and, and myself for the second half of the day, which quite frankly, um, in a situation like that, where you're so dialogue heavy is fantastic because you get to practice and practice and practice and practice off camera before they come in and are like, boom, you're close up. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not going to lie. It's, it's entirely possible that the divine Mariska might have might have been sent home at that point because they have to bring her in so <laughs> early the next morning and they got to give her yeah. 12 hours off. You know, it's union rules. Yeah. So you did this
1: episode Control in season five and then you did Reasonable Doubt in season 15. So like 10 years later and then Swimming with the Sharks was six, six seasons later. Have you noticed, like, I know, if, if you don't remember, it's fine, but like, have you noticed like changes in the show every time you go back? Like anything that, Like rings different, like the feeling on the set or anything? Or every time you go back, is it like, I'm back? (laughs) Same.
0: Again, I (laughs) really, it's just like, if I remember my lines, that's really where all my memory goes to. So I can't, (laughs) I can't really say any particular change. I mean, I would imagine, I guess the show has just grown more and more in its success, but it is one of those shows where the crew has been on it forever, you know? So you come back into the, into the makeup and hair room and it's like, Oh my God, I haven't seen you in six years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe the craft service table is a little bit bigger than it was in 2005. Okay. That's possible. We've heard
1: good things.
0: We've heard good things. We, about heard, the there's service. Juice.
2: we heard there's fresh juice.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Look, you got to keep your, your cast and crew healthy and happy when you're pulling 12 14 16 hour days 22 26 episodes a year like 10 yeah. and a half months out of the year you got to keep people well fed so yeah they got some juice how is the schedule for billions is it as grueling as like a law and order schedule i mean any one hour series is going to be is going to be long days so yeah you know they're they're usually for for a lady in particular Um, you know, it's a 14 hour day. So they're long days, but that's another, you know, it's a very successful show. They take excellent care of everyone. Everyone's very well looked after. So they're long days, but... We know Dan
2: Soder. Is that impressive to you?
0: That is super (laughs) impressive to me. How do you know Dan Soder? Who I love so much. We're both stand-up
2: comedians and we were in New York for many years and so we just, yeah. I was at the Comedy Cellar with Dan for a lot of years. Oh, Comedy Fest. Dan.
0: Dan Soder. Such a sweetheart.
2: <laughs> he's such a great, he's such a great guy. We love him. All of yeah. your co-stars would be good on SVU. Oh my God. I would love some Giamatti on.
0: <laughs> Totes. What do you think that Asia Kate Dillon could play on Law & Order SVU? I'd like to see them on the show.
1: Oh, Yes. Yes, that's another. That's another. Orange is the new black alum too, right? Yeah. Oh, are, yes. They yeah. Were on Orange is and there has been like yeah. the. This is like the Venn diagram of Orange is the New Black and Law and Order SBO. <laughs> yeah. It's like every single person.
2: I would see them as a crime boss. I want like Russian crime boss vibes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Ooh, yeah. That Slitting be, of a throat. Maybe Ooh. on organized crime. Organized <gasps> crime. Is that the new one? Yeah, yeah. that's the new one
2: with um, Maloney. Maloney's back. Okay. I'm curious what you get recognized from the most.
0: You know, it's interesting because I've been around <laughs> for a few years, so sometimes it's just like someone thinks they know me, um, and I'm like, mm, I don't think so. Yeah. But um, you know, I'm I'm actually heading to Pensacola, Florida, for one of these horror sci-fi conventions. Um, which I do from time to time, and um, Super Mario Brothers is always a big wow. That's just you know, there's some there there's some nostalgia for people from their childhood of it of it being something that they watch when they were kids. So I get some Princess Daisy action, and then of course, um, Nora De Niro from Pump Up the Volume, the um, yeah. which you know, I guess I was like the first crush for a lot of dudes and some <laughs> women and, and women who were around that age and wanted to emulate being as cool as that character was, which I wanted to be as cool as that character was. Yeah. Um, and it's so exciting because I just realized on Twitter in the last week that HBO Max actually released it. It hasn't been available. It hasn't been streaming anywhere. And so it's finally out I'm going to watch it. I'm really glad
2: that it's back on the internet.
0: I know. I'm curious to see. So the big problem with it being released in this day and age had been that like, there's so much incredible music on it. And I guess they hadn't licensed that music in perpetuity. You know, you've got like Leonard Cohen and the Pixies and Lenny Kravitz. And like, it's a crazy good soundtrack. um, And they didn't have the licensing for it. So I guess... Warner Brothers, now that it's all HBO Max, whatever. It's one big <laughs> universe. They w- I think it's got the soundtrack. I think it does, but oh, good! you yeah. have to check it out. Yeah. You did
2: uh, mention, you know, you've been working in s- for a while from the night, like doing so much. What are things that have changed in the industry that you like versus, nah, bring me back to the 90s?
0: You know, when I started at, out in 1986 um you know the the desired trajectory of an actor was to get to film you know and once you got out of television you didn't want to be in television anymore because you were labeled a television actor that obviously is not the case anymore it's a whole new landscape and you know in the 80s independent cinema was just on fire. So it was an incredible time to be making small movies. Now it's all about television or streaming content. And that to me is actually really exciting. It's been interesting to see. I don't know what it's been like for you guys during the last two two years of this pandemic, but um, my attention span has really craved television shows over film. Same. It's like, I just want to dive into five seasons of something.
2: So on IMDb, your first credit is Aaron's Way. And Mm -hmm. was that really like your first professional gig being a series regular on a show?
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. Were you like, wow, I'm incredible? I was like, wow, this is great. I'm totally going to have this amazing career. And my mom was like, it's really not that easy. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, whatever. We're shooting the pilot in Australia. Bye. And she was like, oh God, it's not going to be so glamorous. You're going to be in the middle of nowhere. You're going to be staying in a Motel 6. And you know, I have, and she was right. Um, <laughs> but I was very blessed. Yeah. You know, because my mom was an actress, enough of her friends knew that I wanted to pursue a career uh, at the age of 12, um, which, to which my mother said no. But after four years of begging, um, she said, okay, you know, you can, you can give it a shot. And I knew just enough people from her universe that were like, yeah, I'll read your kid. And within like two months, I got this TV series. It was incredible.
1: Yeah. And then like, I'm one of these people that have watched you like all growing up, like pump up the volume. This is my life. Little women, like Fern Gully, you're a voice on Fern Gully. Like, I just can't. It's like, (laughs) it's it's just so wild. But (laughs) But like you did this TV show in 88 and by 90, you were on Pump Up the Volume, which w- you were a huge leading role. So like that, it seems like things went pretty fast for you at the beginning.
0: Well, Aaron's Way was 86. Oh, 86. And- oh, I'm looking at IMDb.
1: It might be yeah. off.
0: It might be. <laughs> yeah, it might be off. But um, yeah, I mean, it was about three years and suddenly I was doing my first feature film that made a big fancy premiere at Grandma's Chinese Theater. And suddenly I was in that girl and like having that, that that moment in Hollywood, which was just, um, amazing. Did you ever work with your mom? She did a very small role in a TV movie just for fun for us to get to do a scene together. It it was called Extreme Close-Up and it was produced, um, by Ed Zwick and Marshall Herskovitz of, um, uh, 30 something fame. They produced it. And Peter Horton, who was an actor on that directed this. And so it was like a really tiny scene. And I was like, do you want to just come do this for fun? And so she did. We were supposed to do a play together once and, um, and I had to pull out of it. So we didn't really get to act together that much, which is a bummer. And do you do theater a lot? I try to. um, I mean, you know, I can't afford to do it all the time. But um, I actually just closed in a a small musical in New York City. We just finished doing it um, about a week and a half ago called Whisper House. Um, The music was written by Duncan Sheik.
1: What He did another big
2: musical. He did did Spring
0: Awakening, which was incredible. Yes. Just did,
2: you, did either of you see that? Oh, I did. I got fired from fat camp. I was a counselor. I was I was 20 years old. I got fired from fat camp and was they just dropped me off at a bus. And so I had to go to New York City and I saw the sign to Spring Awakening. And I went, I have to see it. And I called my dad and I was like, please buy me a ticket to this play. And oh my I did. God. <laughs> so it was a big moment for me. Sorry to go on and on. But yeah, I saw it and it meant a lot to me to be able to see it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was revolutionary at the time, it, like the the choreography, the whole notion of the juxtaposition between rock and roll music with these kids in German little pinafores and school was <laughs> was amazing. Anyway, yes, yeah, so we just did this musical um, called Whisper House, which we were supposed to do. Um, in 2020. And we were about to go on stage on March the 12th to do our very first performance oh and Broadway God. shut down. And then we shut down. It, it was an wow. off-Broadway show, but so we never did it. We never got to do it. And so it's been a wild time, ladies, because like two years later, we reassemble in New York City in December to start rehearsals. And what happens? Omicron. Omicron. Yeah. And what happens? We have an outbreak in the rehearsal oh. room the second week, and six of us get COVID, including myself. So then we moved to Zoom, and we rehearsed on Zoom, which is not ideal oh, yeah, in theater. Yeah. Took a Christmas break, which is me home with uh, COVID for a week, and then we went back and rehearsed entirely in masks the rest of the time. The first time, well, the first time we were in front of a live audience was only the second time we'd ever done the play, seeing each other's faces. It was a wow. wild experience and a miracle because we actually got through the run. We had no understudies. And, uh, so if any of the three cast members who didn't get COVID got COVID, we would be shut down every day. Shows in New York were shutting down. I don't know if you guys follow that stuff, yeah, but like yeah. so many plays that somehow we made it through. We were like the little play I could. So yeah, I just did a play. Um, And um, now I'm recovering.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And are you like New York till you die or you enjoy the West Coast and you're like, you'll dabble? I
0: mean, I would... uh, Look, I grew up in Los Angeles. There are things I really love about it. I love being an actor in LA when I'm working. I don't like being an actor in LA when I'm not working. There's something (laughs) that's just mentally healthier for me about being on the East Coast. And um, I had been... NYC ride or die. Um, but then the pandemic happened and, um, I bought this house in the country and was in contract on it, um, to have it like to use a little bit of the time, but to also be able to rent it out and, and have an Airbnb. Um, and then the pandemic hit and I moved up here. So I'm living in upstate New York. I'm a country girl now.
1: Whoa. Yeah, we talked to a couple of other actors that have done that, actually. It sounds like the move. Like, you can still get to the city easily, easily but you are got some space up there, and it's beautiful, yeah. Do you have any other, like, upcoming projects now that the play is done that you want, like, our listeners to
0: be sort of uh, eyes peeled for or anything? Well, I did a little part in Pet Cemetery in 1969, and that's coming <laughs> out in April on Paramount Plus. Uh, There's a very handsome lad named Jackson White, who's the lead of the movie. And and, uh, Henry Thomas and myself play his parents. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So that'll be. Oh, it's Pet Cemetery. Yeah. Pet Cemetery, (laughs) the origin story. So we go back to 1969 and learn even more of the origin of why these pets are possessed.
1: And then just is it what what is this thing called the Georgetown project that you did? Is that like a that's another horror y type thing? Yeah, it is.
0: It's um, I don't know when it's coming out. It's sort of stuck in a limbo period right now, um, with the editing process. But it is um, it is a retelling of the exorcist uh, in present Mm -hmm. time. They're trying to remake the movie. It's so it's sort of meta, it's about these these people that are trying to remake the movie and no one wants to touch it because it's cursed, you know, the actual movie, when they shot it back in the day, there were several people who died during the production of the movie. And so there's this lore that anyone getting involved with the exorcist
1: right. could die.
0: So that's what's happening in present time. And so they hire a washed up action star um, to, to play the lead. And that's, uh, that's Russell Crowe. <laughs> and he's kind of wow. an alcoholic and a bit of a mess. And then, and then, you know, is he losing his mind or is he being haunted and strange things start to happen during the production of the movie? And did weird things happen? And weird things. Oh, did weird things happen while I was there? <laughs> yeah. You know, no, but I'm going to tell you that there's like a witchy shop in the Lower East Side, no, in the East Village. And I went there and I talked to some of these white witches and I was like, I'm going to do this thing and I just need like a candle to protect me. And they were like, <laughs> huh, incredible. And they'd take out a candle and start carving in it. And they were like, what? There's Satan involved? Okay. And they like created this whole candle that had like spells and ointments and sparkles and all these things. I just, I was like, you know what? You can never be too safe. Wow. We love it. We love witchy stuff.
1: Wow. She's badass. I can't believe we got to talk to her. Like I true, like I remember watching pop up the volume being like, this girl is so cool. Like, and she, like, I don't know. I don't know. She's and I know dated not... all these hot Hollywood people in the 80s. Like, she, and I mean, sorry, the 90s. She's just, like, very, very cool.
2: And chill. And this rarely happens that people are like, oh, yeah, my mom helped me meet an age. You know, like, yeah. I love that she was able to be like, yeah, my mom was an actor and she knew this person. And then I got booked instead of pretending that doesn't exist. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. just enjoy that. Or when someone goes, oh, yeah, I grew up wealthy or something. Like, It's weird that people aren't honest about that Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't That was cool. It
1: doesn't demean how much she's worked. I'm sure
2: she's worked very hard. I mean, judging by the
1: fact that she literally started in the late 80s and by the early 90s was like a household name, basically, sounds like she worked fucking hard. Well,
2: it's the Kim Kardashian of it all. Katherine Ryan, um, superstar in London. She was saying, she goes... People are mad at the Kim Kardashian statement. It's not about you. She's not talking to you. She's talking to other rich people who don't do stuff. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Stop taking it as a personal attack. Like, maybe, like she doesn't realize people have it different. She is trying to help people get out of jail. Like, I think she understands inequality in the world. Maybe not. But I did like that perspective. I just didn't hear someone go, yeah, it's not about you. She's not talking about the people that are working hourly. Like, at, you know, jobs that fucking exploit you I think she's talking to like her peers that she went to high school yeah or
1: like influencers that are like I just want to like post post like bikini shots and make a bunch of money you know and she's like you actually have to do a lot more if you want to like get to my level which is probably true
2: yeah, so that was just interesting because everyone, it's like people just rage so hard. It's kind of like my tweet where I go, parents that post their kids constantly. And then it was like, you hate kids. You have no soul. I'm always like, what are, that is no, not what yeah, I wrote. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not just, what I wrote. Yeah,
1: that's the internet. But like, look, I'm not even like a huge Kim fan or anything. I just like, I fucking hate what Kanye is doing to her right now. So right now I'm Ugh. on her side about pretty much anything. I didn't love the work comment when I first heard it. I was like, Obviously, you have to put it in the right context and not everyone's going to take it out of context. But, like, he is being such a fucking nightmare continually to her. And I just, uh, I got to support her on that because it's, he's, uh, he's the
2: worst. He is the worst. And I'm glad, not really. I'm, I don't know the adjective, but I, that people are seeing what it's like to leave an abusive relationship on such a big scale. Like, yeah. I don't know. I think it's important and it sucks that she has to go through it, but I hope it penetrates people's brains a little bit mm-hmm. and makes people understand or become empathetic. I don't know. But it's also weird that Pete Davidson's in the middle of it all. It's I just know. like, what is happening? And he keeps like, calling
1: out Michael Che and I'm like, it's so fun. It's so weird.
2: Wait, what's the Michael Che of he, it all? He, I didn't see he that. He just like posted on his Instagram. Pete or Kanye?
1: Kanye. Oh, Wow. Yeah, like it was basically what he he deleted it already, but it was basically like this what he did for Trevor Noah, but he did it for Michael Shay. What's the Trevor? I don't know any of this. He just like he it's just his erratic posts. You know how he deletes everything like he only ever has like 10 posts up. I don't know. He had one up that was just the Google results of Michael Che. He's always like trying to like poke at Michael Che. I think it's because of the Pete connection, but I don't know.
2: Anyway, what else? Uh, um, to this episode, Um, I would just say, you know, fucking believe women, even if it's the yeah. craziest story you've ever heard, because the depths of uh, evil are all around us. Yeah. Wow. That's very eloquently put. <laughs> I mean, no, like, everyone's I evil. So, like, it doesn't matter if someone's drunk or the story is wild. Like, I'm sure it's real. I don't know. Yeah.
1: It just sucks to know. But uh, people are always gonna. People are always gonna like prey upon people that won't be believed. You know, they they like they're they prey upon people that have like you know vulnerabilities, and that's what's so fucked up. We should try. To, we need to help more people.
2: And and if someone brings a teenager as a date and they're a grown person to a family party, kick them off out of the party. Yeah,
1: and it out. just it really did make me not that I wanted like Samantha Mathis's character to not exist, but it did make me realize how much like. That this mother did not like, she had a lot of resentment for her child because she felt like her child ended her life in a lot of ways, and that's why we need to have choice. You know, like I don't wish that she was didn't exist, but you know what I mean. Like the mom was like, she ended my modeling career, she ended my relationships. It's like you didn't want a kid, and she's like, I didn't have a choice. And it's like, well, luckily we still, for the minute, have choice. Who knows how long it's going to take the Supreme Court to dismantle that, but right now we have it.
2: And shout out to Joelle Nicole Johnson. She was nominated for a Critics' Choice Award this last week or two weeks ago, um, for her comedy special on Peacock. Uh, but she brought, she brought her clutch on the red carpet said abortion is normal. Oh, awesome. And so she was really pumping up that purse and built her whole outfit and look around her purse. I shouldn't have doubted you,
1: but I really did not know where you were going with that. And I thought you were just going into a <laughs> shout out for Joyelle. And I was like, okay, right from abortion. <laughs> no, <back laughs> but I shouldn't abor- have doubted you. Well- I knew there was a tie in.
2: Well, she's um she's worked for, with Lady Parts Justice, and she's very good. Yeah. Like, she will go to a group of people protesting abortion and choice, and calmly talk to them for like hours to try to change their mind. Like, she does the groundwork and goes to these fucking dumb towns and talks to like dumb teenage boys who think they have an opinion on anything. And so she really does a lot of the work. So that's shout awesome. Out. Shout out to Joyelle. Yeah, everybody, check out her special.
1: Um. And then let's just segue into what would Sister Peg do? Uh, This is our weekly segment where we give you guys an organization, a link, a book, something that will give you more info about what we talked about in today's episode. This week, we want to highlight the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, which is at www.nsvrc.org. And they are the leading nonprofit in providing information and tools to prevent and respond to sexual violence They address the causes and impact of sexual violence through collaboration, prevention, and resources offering comprehensive support through helping communities prevent sexual violence using research, community-based practices to create safe and respectful environments. They identify and disseminate resources related to all aspects of sexual violence and promote research and statistics, um, trends, and best practices in sexual assault preventions. And they do so much more. So while they are not a direct service provider, they do refer callers seeking counseling and support to partner organizations um, in your area on local, state, national levels. So if you want to learn more, check out their website. Again, that's 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 www.nsvrc. And that will also be, as always, in our stories the day that this episode comes out and always in our Instagram highlight called WWSPD.
2: And you guys are such incredible people. And I know you're going to check out all the resources that touch your heart. And you guys really showed up for Ukraine.
1: Yeah, we earned a bunch of money for the Ukraine, uh, um, more than $2,400. And... That was so like so awesome of all of you guys to give. I'm sure people gave, but um, that was just what we counted of the donations that were 50 plus. And uh, you guys are so generous. We love you. And we hope to see you live at our shows. That's messeduplive.com. Check out the live stream, etc. cetera.
2: I did run into um, Nick Thune at South By and he goes, I love that um, podcast now at the top. I have to start with like, listing out the thank yous to all the gifts they get. (laughs) I thought that was funny. Where it's like, and thank you so much for bringing that knitted handbag to the show. It's like, it's true. People are so cool. Um, Next week, we got a fucking Warren Light tongue twister. Remember Me in Quarantine season 22, episode three. Peacock, Hulu, VPN sticks, fire sticks everywhere. (laughs) VPNs are not sticks, but you've been saying it for so long
1: that I didn't want to change Change your mind, but somebody did write into us, and I was like, I do know that, but I sometimes I just let Lisa go, you know. Um, <laughs> I didn't know but at yeah, all. get a VPN and watch us <laughs> illegally across the world. Um, we'll see you guys next week. Bye.
2: That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right Production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmesseduppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Annalise Nelson. And to our mixing engineer, Ryo Baum. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. And to Carly
1: Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everyone at Exactly Right Media.
2: Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dun-dun!